Uh, well, it was wide, like, you know. I don't know how many thousand people were, <laughs> were here. I'd say every one of them thought it was wide except the umpire. But anyway, sure, look, that's what happens when you, you know, anyway, a grounds, you don't tend to get breaks. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Oh yeah. <laughs> Nodding dogs. Yes, here we are. It's Thursday morning? Thursday it is morning. Thursday morning. Oh my god. February second. Wasn't it the longest month of all time? Oh, it was. Wasn't it? Yeah. Didn't like, touch a drop of drink for the whole month. Did you not? No, not a drop for January. Right? I, I really stuck to my guns. Okay, wow. Yeah. And I was out for pints a couple of times and had the, the zero zeros. It's not much fun, is it? Uh, brutal. I went home after two. The zero zeros kinda of makes you just feel bloated and sugary. Yeah, what's the point? Should have just taken water or something else but yeah I made it survived feel good for it do you, you know? <clears throat> well I was I was doing more gym and more running and more eating better and sauna and steam room and all, like the rest. all of these things are more it, important than intri- drink. intricately linked yeah yeah you can definitely you can manage these two things <clears throat> yeah I know you, you you think you could but makes it easier to be healthy when you're when you cut out something like alcohol and has it changed your life forever oh for the for the better honestly like uh, has, has has this interruption of the normal pattern it's it's I, I tend to do it every year or January I kind of and then you just go mad like a like a junior footballer free after the championship yeah, like a ca- cattle led into the field in spring. I'm sorry, Your Honor, I was on the on the drive for twelve weeks and we won the championship <laughs> and I I won't do that again. Yeah, exactly. Like the Glen and Kilmacud players. I'll return all the property I stole. I'm sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to start that fire. Yeah. I know, like I'd recommend it, but but uh, I'll, I'll enjoy myself this month. But I think it changes your attitude. You don't maybe go as heavy. I had, I had a fairly busy Christmas. On nights out, heavy. so heavy Christmas. So uh, yeah, January was was a necessity. Right. So you're going buck mental this weekend. I will go buck mental. I've the uncles. Uh, I've parties and stuff this weekend. So well, one party. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll have a couple of drinks. Has it recalibrated your ambitions for the year from an athletic perspective? Have you decided? You know, you, you normally do something outrageous. Mm. You see, you see, Mount Albert, or sorry, not Mount Albert, Mount Elbrus in Russia had been my, my key for a oh, while, yeah. which now is pretty difficult to, to get to Russia. Uh, we had the flights booked, everything. All right. Uh, and then COVID happened, and then Russia, Ukraine happened, so and that mountain is not going to be climbed for qu- quite some time, I'd imagine. Right. And so what do you replace that with? I don't know. I'm going to have to have a think. Uh, another tall mountain somewhere, probably. The Rockies last summer. I'm glad you brought this up. It gives me the humble brag opportunity once more. Uh, it's it's brilliant. My ego is literally. I'm surprised my head can fit in the studio at the moment. But um, I'm going to come up with something tall, like the Matterhorn and Mont Blanc is is are pretty dangerous. Yeah. I'd like to climb climb a tall one that you know the percentage risk on my life isn't that high. A zero percent risk, apart from like yeah. you know one of those uh, Darwin Award stupidity moments. True. Well, it's never zero. Like people die in Kilimanjaro and people die climbing the Rockies, but you can yeah, but you can manage it. Like no, yeah. less people. Yeah, f- yeah. Right. If anybody has any suggestions, uh, lash them into the comments there. 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. The Manchester United fans, they're feeling themselves this morning. Uh, Shane is one of them. Um, he'll, you know, uh, metaphorically, obviously. Uh, Jaden Sancho is back. <laughs> tell me about it, Shane. Yeah, tell you what. Uh, I, the, the reception that Jaden Sancho got when he came off the bench last night, bust or not, was something else. Eric Ten Hag, a man who doesn't really let his emotions go too often, smiling, smirking, 
the whole Stratford end singing Sancho's name for the remainder of the match and clapped him off the pitch he was smiling as well it was just it was a lovely heartwarming moment even Anthony Martial started smiling when he scored which just you never see um, so to, to see Sancho back in the pitch I think United fans are, are buzzing yeah buzzing for that buzzing for the cup final I, I can't wait I'm, I'm hoping to head over to, to Wembley never been to Wembley never seen United in a, in a final of any cup so uh, that's one to take off the list but uh, yeah United fans are excited and, and probably the, have the moral high ground over Newcastle nobody wants Newcastle to win except for Newcastle fans um, I think you'll find that uh, a lot of uh, Manchester United's uh, resentment is deep-seated Shane mm, that's, yeah, that's that there's been a, a long story tradition of Manchester United winning everything yeah. that just because this little tiny blip that they've had over the last short period of time in human history yeah. a lot of people have not forgotten that possibly uh, Roy Keane was was one another man who'll be looking for tickets. He uh, outwardly on the TV coverage last night at the, at the end of the uh, pitch side interview with Eric Ten Hag said, "Will you get me two tickets? Um, they're still on air." And uh, he's like, "Yeah, two complimentary tickets because you know I don't want to pay." And uh, Ten Hag thumbs up. I'll get you two. And then of course he, he realised he could potentially be working at that final, so uh, he won't need to get two tickets. Was there a frostiness between? Keen and official Manchester United. I mean, there wasn't really when Sol- when Solskjaer was there, so that's no. not true, is there? No, I think. I just had this sense that, like, somehow there was a shield, an Alex Ferguson shield between Keen and the love of the Old Trafford apparatus. Yeah, I think when Van- that even Solskjaer couldn't quite overcome. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. I think when Van Hal and Mourinho were there, Ferguson's impact and uh, influence was still quite strong. Um, maybe less so when Solskjaer was there and Keane probably cared less because he was so close to Solskjaer not just a former teammate but someone who actually really likes and gets on with so I think that probably brought him closer to the club he's, he's a United fan now somebody he has an intertextual relationship with yeah exactly there aren't that many of those no and and he wa- you could sense that Roy was buzzing last night um, I know he's a former Forest player as well but I think with United doing well he's getting a little bit of a maybe he's just like I'm going to get more work because United are doing well I think he's okay for the work and yeah, the money probably <laughs> and so um, the rank hypocrisy of the Manchester United fans celebrating uh, a goblet of minor prestige like a place in the final of the League Cup Answer those charges, Shane. They weren't celebrating like... like. What? You just told me that Roy Keane was happy. Yeah, Roy Keane was happy. Uh, he, he seemed, and you were happy. You're buzzing. He, he seemed in, in a good mood, Roy, generally speaking. So uh, now now the League Cup matters. He, well, I, I think the League Cup always mattered. I actually was looking up last night. Roy Keane never won the League Cup. That's a trophy. You know the way it comes up on there? He, he, he never won the League Cup. Because they didn't care about it. Well, maybe there's that argument. He did win five FA Cups. But, uh, like, I'm sure it's a trophy he would have liked to have won. You like to take off all these trophies. Bruno Fernandes was speaking after the match and he was like, you know, I, I've only been in one final since I came to United. We lost in penalties to Villarreal. He's never won a trophy with United. I do think that uh, trophies matter in different ways. With with uh, All trophies aren't the same, right? That, that, that's my yeah, central piece here. In that Mourinho was like, oh, I won that trophy. It's amazing. We are, we, that is now. We have unlocked something. And Van Gaal winning the cup getting sacked in the elevator on the way down essentially mm. that also felt like the end of an era as opposed to we've built this team we're continuing to build the team the team is progressing and getting better it, like that's kind of a stumble over the line yeah. now maybe the fans don't care like uh, and it doesn't matter to the fans because it, it's you know you, you talk to Andy Mitten he's like being a supporter winning trophies is really that's the best part about being a yeah. supporter and so it doesn't actually matter. You enter these competitions. At the end of it, there's like people going up steps and there's celebrations and there, that whole thing happens. And 
but I do feel like if Manchester United in this guise win a trophy, it's different from, say, uh, Liverpool winning the same trophy last year. Like, mm. Liverpool are kind of coming off a peak, Manchester United are cresting towards a peak. Um, so I don't know. That's my some, that's of, the, my some of the greatest moments theory this morning. Yeah, but I think as a, as, a, as a football fan, sticking in the fan. oven, seeing how it goes. Yeah, see what see what happens. Hot hot take. Uh, the the best moments as a sportish sports fan is when your favorite player or team wins a trophy. Like if you're a Rory McIlroy fan, you want him to win the Masters. You want him to win a major, and those are the best days, regardless of how well he plays in, in tournaments or the the smaller crappier tournaments that he wins. United winning a, a League Cup. Like, I remember watching the League Cup final in, in, what was it, 2016 when United won, and you're buzzing. The FA Cup in 2017 when they beat Palace, buzzing. Yeah. Uh, but Liverpool fans have experienced that in recent years. They'd be buzzing to win all these trophies. Yes, of course, some trophies are more important than others, but, like, I think United fans are more buzzing last night because of the, the vibe on the team. Yeah, totally. And I do think, it, like, so, at the end of a cycle of, of winning trophies, you'll be like, ah, it's only a League Cup. But at the start of a cycle of winning trophies, you like, this is... This is our springboard. Now, I mean, it doesn't always work that way. Didn't Wanda Ramos? Didn't Wanda Ramos win a, a, a League Cup yeah, with Spurs? Well. And did they win another game that season? I'm not sure if they did. I think they took their foot off the pedal because they qualified for European football and that was their ambition. Man United have bigger ambitions. Spurs fans and, will remember that moment. Bigger fish to fry. They will, yeah. I mean, the other it, thing, it was a bit Spursy, the response to it. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, well, that, to be expected. Sancho as a number 10. All right, so let's talk about this. I said he's been a bust up to this point. Yeah. That's not to suggest he's always going to be a bust because you've got to look now at what Ten Hag has done with various players, yeah. turning them into much better versions of themselves. So if Sancho gets back to a position where he's contributing to the team, then it doesn't really matter, does it? No. He looked more lively at number 10. The last yes, two years yeah. are written off. Yeah. Now, he's coming on in the last 25 minutes of a second yeah. leg of a cup tie that... That's it. It, was, it was nil all at that stage, was nil it? Nil all, yeah, yeah. When he came on, yeah. But they were three nil up on aggregate, so it didn't matter. But better than a kick in the hole, yeah. And his touch probably was a bit off because he hasn't played uh, in quite some time. He's just back in training recently enough. But they they moved Bruno out wide, and I just feel like it, it's less about strength and pace, sheer pace in the middle, through the middle as a number ten. Uh, that's maybe where Sancho was getting found out a little bit, and maybe why guy. he was a bust. Yeah, but but in the middle there, that number ten position, it's about the, the short little quick touches, uh, which Sancho was good at. Played to his strengths. He can score as well. He can shoot. Uh, maybe he'll score more in the number ten role. Bruno Fernandez was brilliant last night. Brilliant, and he has been. Uh, like I've been critical of him. I think you know, a lot of United fans have been critical of Bruno Fernandez. Uh, he was even a couple of his out, outside of the boot passes last night. He was asked about it after the match, and he said, "I think the presenter she asked him, uh, how did you learn to do that?'" And he said, "Ricardo Cardesma. He was my." Professor in Portugal, right outside of the boot. He said, "Try it, and if it comes off one time out of 20 you're so gonna look amazing." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So be it. TikTok so. hasn't been invented yet, son, but when it is, <laughs> you're going to be a star. Yeah, yeah. So YouTube footballer, but uh, it was brilliant. Uh, Shifty lad, did you see Cantona's shirts after Shane? Cool man, if ever there was one. Ah, uh, world class, great player, great player, wouldn't great say, character, wouldn't world say, class character. Yeah, yeah. world class footballer. Wouldn't say really, good, really iconic, very important figure in history of football. Great footballer who won. Um, Not even in your top ten though. Four Premier. Well, my top ten is coming is to come next week. Next for next week, Colm is away. Colm is uh, is off gallivanting, and so Colm's going to do his. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but you can you can in the meantime, like your shit lyrics, you can send them into us wherever you want to uh, get in touch with us. Yeah. At off the ball am on Twitter. Man United versus Newcastle says Fergus Keogh. I want the both to lose. Maybe penalties, and it never ends. <laughs> what does happen in a penalty shootout if it never ends? 
Just keep going. What's well, I wonder what the longest penalty shootout in history was. Is there the like one? a you know we we sorry lads we raised the point here. I mean come on. they're <laughs> the the cleanest staff are in and they're like you know yeah. shuffling underneath our feet. There was one of the FA Cup a couple a few years ago in early very early rounds where it was like thirty something. They both scored 30-something penalties each. Superken354 says, Liverpool had an open-top parade for this cup and the FA Cup, FYI. I mean, I think probably Liverpool uh, are entitled to celebrate two trophies like that after a season. Is this last year? Is it? Uh, it must be. Last season, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, they were in the hunt in all four competitions. That's a celebration of the season. It's not just for those trophies. Um, mm. And Thomas McGuire says, Jaren listing in the Richard Key celebration place. It's the opposite. I'm just pointing out that the Man United fans would have been ragging on the Liverpool fans going, oh, no, I don't think... And now they're like, oh, oh, oh. United- <laughs> oh you, you no. should have celebrated that. It was a really good idea. No, 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 no. United fans were jealous of Liverpool fans last year when they were winning the League Cup and the FA Cup. I think United fans were happy that they didn't go on and win all four. And uh, I guess put the qu- the treble into everyone's just into the back pocket. Nobody ever care- would care about the treble whatsoever again if Liverpool won a quadruple. But no, Liverpool won two good trophies last year. <laughs> <laughs> two top trophies, <laughs> right? Uh, the big story on the back of all of the sports pages is uh, Katie's Croker fight off due to high rents. That's the back of the mail. Uh, price fighter. It's a picture there of uh, Katie Taylor. Her and Croke Park is too expensive for Taylor Serrano rematch. McGuigan, GA should give venue to Hero Katie for free. Um, and that's, uh, there's another Croker Croaks story. Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes' time if you have the stomach for it. I've actually I've lost the one really that has the McGuigan lead. But um, yeah, so Karen Cunningham has spoken to, to Barry McGuigan, I think, or certainly it's the star that had that. Uh, boxing legend Barry McGuigan feels GA Chief should have begged Katie Taylor to fight at Croke Park uh, Taylor's promoter Eddie Hearn confirmed last night that Croker wasn't a runner for the eagerly awaited rematch between Taylor and Amanda Serrano now Amanda Serrano is fighting this weekend and she has to win for this rematch to happen so it's not a done deal uh, you think that Croke Park would give her the place for nothing because she's such a hero there's an interesting shout I love Barry McGuigan He's a, a national hero, an iconic figure in Irish sports history, uh, a glorious dash of Technicolor in a very monochromatic 1980s Ireland, and um, he's an absolute legend. But they're wrong about this, because you're not giving Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano the use of Croke Park. You're giving Eddie Hearn mm. the use of Croke Park. And Eddie Hearn is a really, really clever, really clever fella, right? So he's on Ariel Hawani last night uh, on the MMA Hour, which is ironically named because it's actually four hours long. But anyway... Um, he's on and he's saying that uh, they're going to fight they can't fight in Croker in May they have to go in May because otherwise there'll be another opportunity missed and the, 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 the tide is bubbling up to a point where the rematch will have been or the first match will have been so long ago that they need to fight again mm. and he's like oh we won't do that one there it's going to be the three arena still called the three arena, three arena. It uh, it's going to be in the three arena it's on the 20th of, of May, which is the same night as the Heineken Champions Cup final, right? Yeah, in Dublin. Yeah, so uh, a lot of policing is obviously required. And they're saying, oh, Croke Park is, is too expensive. It's not too expensive. You're trying to make too much money, Eddie. That's, that's all this is. Like, it's just the price. It's the same price that Garth Brooks paid. Have Westlife played there? I think they have. Uh, they have you yeah. two have played there? They just pay the price. If you have a, if you've, if you've a hall to rent... The price of the hall is the price of the hall. No, but you change the price of the hall depending on uh, who else needs it at that particular uh, point in time. And surge pricing like Ryanair. Well, I mean, May is right in the middle of the GA Championship. Surely uh, the price is more expensive than September. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously more difficult for them to make that work when, you know, 
Dublin and Kildare could be playing that that weekend. Could be. Yeah, yeah we'll that's that Newbridge, lads. What? How about that? What? Take them hey. out of croaker, yeah, yeah. Well, put Kelly Taylor in for free and move that to Newbridge, come on! <laughs> uh, but uh, this is Eddie Hearn, a genius negotiator with his foghorn going, oh, Croke Park's too expensive, and everybody's like, yeah, mm. they should give that to Kelly Taylor for nothing. It's like, no, 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 no. You give her the money, Eddie Hearn, we wouldn't be able to pay the fighters what they deserve. You pay her. You're, you're like, absolutely loaded. Absolutely minted. Eddie Hearn likes to project this image of someone who, uh, you know, doesn't know what he, you know, he's, he's kind of just saying things on a whim. Every word that comes out of Eddie Hearn's mouth is carefully calculated and, and manipulated as well. We, uh, so he, he meant what he said during that MMA hour. We, we have obviously given the GA uh, and their lack of action over the Glenn Croaks thing. Um, what was that thing? Uh, I can't uh, remember what happened there. Uh, you know, a hard time on this show over the week. But they're absolutely right to charge the right price. They're like, this is the rent of the hall and you can have it for the money because that's how much it costs. Like, that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing that is, hasn't really been reported is that uh, Serrano Taylor 3 will be in Croker in September. Mm-hmm. So That's the he word. can afford it then. Do you know what I mean? He can afford it then. Yeah, but maybe the prices are different. Maybe the prices are, are a tiny bit different. But like, as you say, the price for this week is this and the price for this week is this. And away we go. Like, um, Yeah. So uh, painting, painting the GA in a bad light when it's Eddie Hearn doing the talking, you just have to be careful about that, is all I would say. I, I, I almost feel like now putting, putting Katie Taylor Serrano in the three arena is like putting the World Snooker Championship final into... Uh, snooker hall in in Monaghan somewhere. I I mean, uh, like, is it not a bit, a bit wasted? I know it's still eight thousand fans. They pack it out. The atmosphere will be incredible. Eddie has that right, but it won't be a Croke Park atmosphere. Like, and how many people can you fit in Croke Park for a boxing match? Because you you fill seats, but then you you can also fill the pitch. Is it more than eighty thousand? I honestly don't know. I don't know. What I don't know what the boxing. what the in the round capacity would be. Yeah. I don't know if you can because like you obviously probably can't. The Ali fight, I wonder. I think the Ali fight didn't sell out, and that, I think oh, like yeah, thirty-five, forty thousand. Also, the um, stands weren't quite what they were. I think we can actually listen. So this is a clip from Ariel Helwani's MMA hour, and uh, it's Eddie Hearn speaking to him. Have a listen. Speaking of venues, okay, we have to. I, I need to. I need to figure this one out. What the hell is going on with Croke Park? Why, how could they have this gift from the gods? Yeah, I know. It's what so is wrong with these? So is, it, is it true that they are the reason why the GAA? What is going on over there? So the cost of hire, the cost of, you know, everything involved with the event is three times nearly more than staging it at Wembley Stadium. It's unbelievable and it's so frustrating. Um, can you argue, though, that it's worth it? You can, but, like, people will just tweet me and go, shut up, Hearn, just do it anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't work like that. It's a business. Ultimately, Katie Taylor has a financial demands for this fight. Right. So does Amanda Serrano. And we want to make sure we deliver them that. But we're so far out on that possibility with the cost of running that show that now, and we're out of time in terms of delivering that date to the broadcaster, we've got to move. So now we'll be in a big arena in Dublin, subject to uh, Serrano sure, winning sure, sure. and subject to tying up a deal. And then hopefully in September, we revisit Croke Park. But it's like, you know, it's frustrating. But at the same time, I promised Katie Taylor would be in Ireland for her next fight. It will be the most sensational atmosphere wherever we are. But we'll see what happens on Saturday night. Yeah, it's funny how Eddie has accurately predicted what some people will say about uh, shut up and pay the money. Like, it's his money. He can afford it. Do you know, the, like, in fairness, Eddie Hearn has backed Katie Taylor, has really helped with the 
amplification of her career to a point where this is happening and so he deserves a lot of credit for that. But in this instance, it's like, you know, you could easily pay the money. You don't have to make the same amount of profit off every single deal. There is definitely like a bit where you're rewarding her for her living up to everything and every single step, every single second of her bargain you she has lived up to and more than that surpassed it. And, you know, if you want to give her the fight in Croke Park and take a small bit less profit because it's still going to be wildly profitable. Like, wildly profitable fight. Either way. Well, Eddie can mention the GEA and he can mention the Irish government, but at the end of the day, the one person who can push this and and make this fight happen in Crook Park is Katie Taylor, I think. Because Eddie Hearn is not going to... If Katie Taylor goes to Eddie and says, put it in Crook Park, like, I deserve Crook Park. Like, she deserves an 80,000-seater stadium. She doesn't deserve an 8,000-capacity three arena. That's going to be a great night. Uh, don't get me wrong. If, if it goes ahead small but, venues are iconic like and yeah, the arena has had amazing but we're going to talk about it and you had to be there a little bit later on with, with Eric Donovan uh, he's talking about a Bernard Dunn fight um, where he beat Ricardo Cordoba we were ringside that night doing commentary and it is unbelievable <laughs> it's unbelievable <laughs> I, the, like she can make it happen can, can she not turn can she not turn around to Eddie and say Eddie you're putting it in Croke Park I'm sorry she's the boss at the end of the day it sounds like this is a done deal yeah, it's secured for the for the twentieth of of uh, now. Maybe it's not. Maybe this is the last bit of the roll of the dice that he's trying to shame the GA into somehow going. Oh no, you that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll absolutely uh, lower the costs. Mm. Um, here's the other thing, right? It is probably true that the cost of staging, which isn't all just uh, the hire of Croke Park, it's going to be the cost of policing and everything else around it. It is probably true that this is a difficult country to do business in compared to other places, other yeah. parts of the world. The cost of living, all that kind of stuff. It would be very interesting to hear from, uh, you know, other massive, large-scale promoters Unless about how multi- difficult it is. If you're a multinational corporation, it's quite an easy country to, uh, to be in. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably not to put events on, though. I don't know Maybe what the, events, yeah. the specific bit about, like, public liability insurance and mm. our propensity to fall over holes that weren't actually there and then go, oh, compo. <laughs> yeah, I was so, shocked to hear it's three times more expensive than Wembley. But is it three times more expensive? He said nearly. There's nearly like one and a half times more. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, and once you factor in the the exchange rate and all that kind of stuff, like, is, is it is it factually exactly three times more? Mm. You know, are we? What are we talking about here? Show us the numbers, Eddie. The, exactly. <laughs> and they'll never show us the numbers because then they, then so you make more than the boxers combined. <laughs> like three times more. Nearly three times Nearly more. Nearly three times more, yeah, yeah. Could be one and a half times. No, but they're taking all the risk, right? That's, they're taking all the risk, apart from the risk of brain damage. True, yeah. So look, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, this is one of those scenarios where you're like, I think the price is the price, and if you want to pay the price, pay the price. And if you don't want to pay the price, don't pay the price. Does it whet the appetite for Croke Park more if they have three arenas in um, in May? For if they do go ahead in September in Croke Park, if Serrano wins this Saturday night? What if Serrano wins in, in Three Arena? Does everybody show up at Croke Park? Do they sell out Croke Park? Is this a once-in-a-lifetime... Is, is, is it now or never? Either way, that, that'll be 1-1 one, one then, won't it? Yeah. So then, I think either way. Regardless of how the second fight goes between them, I think the third fight sells out anyway. Because it's Katie Taylor in Croke Park against the, the best fighter of her generation that she can come up, come up against, probably. Um, regardless of what their record is against each other. She's obviously getting to the end. Yeah. As well. That's now or never. Thing, is that... But she has to do it in 2023. Like, Croke Park has to happen this year. They all said it. So if it doesn't happen now in 2023, that's probably why he's named in September. That's the gap after the All-Ireland Finals are finished. Just get it done. Get it done. Now, I haven't said that. I'll be in the Three Arena in May if it, ha- if it happens. I think, like a lot of Irish sports fans, it's one of those moments you'll want to be there, just in case. You have to see Katie Taylor live in person. 
especially in Ireland. So um, no, I'm looking forward to it, regardless of where it is. Just put, like we'll have to try and get Eddie, Eddie Hearn on the show and clarify this, and maybe hear from the GEA as well. Like, what's the crack here? Like, why? What? What are the costs? Uh, obviously, there are security issues around Irish boxing ever since the Regency, and, and clearly costs are up because of that. I mean, the the criminal underworld's involvement with British boxing and uh, showing up to fights is probably at a similar level as it would be to here. You know, I think. Um uh, you'd like to think a lot of those extra costs have receded, um, but I don't know. Uh, bring Katie to the Carlisle grounds, says Shifty Lad. <laughs> that would sell out, I think. I wonder what the capacity would be again. It's, it'd be, uh, I, I mean, I'd love someone who knows exactly what they're talking about to go, well, once you put the arena, uh, the uh, fight in the middle of the pitch, you can get an extra, or you lose. Yeah. Because you know, obviously, you, maybe, I don't know, maybe the top of the stand, Croker, you'd be fine on those old stands that have overhangs you couldn't well it's, it's, a, it's a ring so y- you can actually put people it's uh, elevated though y- uh, yeah it's not a it's, uh, maybe it doesn't you, that can, high but every seat in the stadium can be taken up because you can put the ring in the middle of the, the pitch and then yeah. people around it you know 80,000 plus Edward Freeman says Coke Park charging extortionate prices means Eddie Herman would pass on the cost of fans and ticket prices but it's not extortion it's just the price like mm. it wasn't extortion that when it's so like Garth Brooks tickets were 50 quid I think Right? Really? Is that, don't ask me. Everyone thinks I, I'm a big Garth Brooks fan, and I know that. I don't know what the price of Garth Brooks tickets were. I'm sure you, you, you were at him. I'm sure you bought a load for for people. I, the, the Garth Brooks tickets, I think, were fifty quid because uh, although he had five nights and you know made loads of money off it, it was you like there. it was. You're not going to extortion it, so you don't have to pass it on. Like this bit where, well, if Eddie Hearn makes this fight, he needs to make he needs to clear a hundred million from this, otherwise it's not worth his while, or whatever the fee is. Like it's, maybe it's twenty million. Like it's a lot of money. Whatever it is, right? Mm. He can just carve a little bit of that and go. Okay, this is for you, Katie. This is for you, Amanda. And like again, the the bit where it's an iconic moment in boxing history. If they can fill Croker, yeah. Like he's responsible for that, and he has it forever. He's got loads of money. He's got the Jake Paul shit going on. They're all going to make loads of money off each other over the next five years. And he's a very young man. He's going to be in this game for another 30 years. Bob Arum is still doing it in his 90s. True. Like, it's, um, not, it's not exactly a young man's game. I'm, it's any I'm, man's game or woman's game at this stage. I'm just not taking at face value the bit where we can't do this because it's too expensive. Yeah. Says, says the boxing promoter. I just, I'm not... I think that there's more to that story than the one side of it that we've heard so far. So I, I look forward to I look forward to other information coming to light. Carlisle Grounds would fit three thousand two hundred people, and then of course you've got the Dart Station in behind there, so easy access for people from from all across Dublin down to it. Uh, only twenty five thousand, Jer, were at the uh, Ali Al Blue Lewis fight in Croke Park in nineteen seventy four. Twenty five thousand, right? Yeah, obviously a smaller stand back then, so maybe that had an impact, but. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, Katie would be a sellout. Eighty thousand plus. Could you do a hundred thousand in Croker? I don't. I don't know. Like, will you sell a hundred thousand tickets? I think everybody takes as a matter of fact that these tickets will sell. That's a big amount of tickets to sell. Like, True. This is a huge amount of tickets to sell, and uh, you know, is it is it the boxing audience? Is it just an Irish sports fans? Is it is it just GA fans going to Croker to see Croker be used for like so it's any Irish sports fan and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity sure but I, I I do wonder if there's a pause in in their sense that actually they wouldn't sell these and that's why they're not paying the money 
you know? Like, if they thought they were going to sell 80,000 tickets at between 70 and 120 or 70 and 140 quid a ticket, they're doing it immediately, whatever the cost is, mm. and they're taking their money and they're running. That's like... But if there's a pause in their in their mind, they're like, "Oh, it's not us. It's a, you know, we've got to we've got to get a reduced fee on the base that we're not sure it's going to sell, like, because you're not sure it's going to sell." Do you not think they'd sell that? Fairly? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know enough about selling eighty thousand tickets. Yeah. for an event, it's a lot of tickets. Like, this is the this is the biggest night out in Dublin, you know, in in decades probably. Like a Katie Taylor fight in Croke Park. That's the biggest night out in Dublin there's been in, in quite some... It'll be a social event, not just a sporting event. You have to be there kind of thing. Do you know? I, I don't think people will want to miss that. I'd, I'd be surprised if everyone in my family weren't looking tickets for that. And there's countless families across the country that will be the same. Do you know? You don't want to... You don't want to be the one person in your family not at this fight. Put it that way. I, I think 80,000 tickets is would be sold. Again, I don't, I don't know anything about selling tickets either, but... Uh, anecdotally you would imagine 80,000 tickets for a Katie Taylor fight in Croke Park would sell comfortably well, one way to find out um, so apparently the guards get between 20 and 47 grand for uh, ticketing for policing events at the Aviva um, and the bills for stuff at Croker range, range between 14 and 28 grand so obviously nothing basically mm. in the context of uh, selling 80,000 tickets. This is from the Irish Times, I think. Um, and there are figures released under the Freedom of Information. Someone has made the point in, uh, in the comments, and it makes sense, Katie won't sell out if an Irish team is in the Heineken Champions Cup final, which is a fair point for May 20th. Do you know, if Munster or Leinster or both, or Ulster or Connacht, well, not Connacht, uh, apologies, uh, are in the Champions Cup final, then that's a lot of people that would have been potentially... I, I, you know, I, don't Ulster, I don't think Ulster, the crossover of... Um, is huge, uh, but big like, boxing fans up in Belfast. The Leinster fans, yeah, the Leinster fans going to see Katie. I don't know. Again, is that are they the same audience? I'm not sure, but certainly, uh, the Leinster woman. Certainly, the um, like you don't want another massive sports event on the same night. First off, so no. that that's one part of it. Which again, I suspect is like part of the. We actually don't want it to be in in Croke Park because we're we're unsure about tickets. There's a massive event on. The cost is like we're not going to make as much profit. Mm. We'll uh, do this small event and we'll see if it works and we'll see what the demand is like. We'll make everybody pre-register and then if that fight goes the way we think it does, then we have uh, the trilogy fight and we we get everybody's details and we pre-sell them and then we've got forty thousand tickets gone before we launch and away we go. Like there's definitely there's more to this than uh, uh, it, like you know. He, if you listen to the piece, it's clear they've had a conversation about it. Yeah. It's clear that the GAA has come up. Ari Hawani is bringing the GAA up unprompted. Mm-hmm. And um, away we go. And the, the stories are, oh, give it to them for free. Give it, give, give the near billionaire boxing promoter something for nothing. He deserves it. It's like, well, Katie obviously deserves something, right? But she's going to get that from the support of the Irish public. Yeah. That's the bit here where you just got to be careful about the, the motivation of the people involved. And people like people suggest in the comments the Aviva, but like and and other s- smaller stadiums. But the point is, it's Croke Park because Bloody Sunday, Ireland, England, the national anthem, Ali, 
the All Ireland finals across the years. Like it, it, it's Lazar Road's pretty good. Yeah, Lazar Road's an amazing stadium. It is, of course. Hang on a second now. But like I mean, from a, Roy Keane and Mark Overmars, Crooked Park's our national What's stadium. What's wrong with the Aviva? Crooked Park's Nothing. the national stadium. It's not our national stadium. It's well, the GA stadium. We yeah, don't have a national stadium. Yeah, but okay. But in our hearts, but it's you our can't, national you stadium. Can't, no, historic. Can't, the history of Crooked Park is very important. Absolutely very important. Yeah, and, and that's why Katie Taylor they can do that. But if they only think they're going to sell forty thousand tickets, the Aviva's amazing. It's great, but it's not Crooked Park. It's not. Just Crooked Park feels different. Because of the history, yeah. Your your history's in the walls. Your, it's in the grass. GA exceptionalism again. No, not at all. It is, I, yeah. I, I and mean, the number of events there that weren't GA related. Ali is being one of them. Ireland, England, and the rugby. There's just moments in Croke Park that stand out. Um, there are great moments in Lansdowne Road and the Aviva over the years. She was a soccer player. Played soccer for Ireland. Yeah. Do you know? Like uh, the Lansdowne Road is the natural home for that. Maybe, maybe Daily Mount is the national home. 40,000 is perfect. Like, it's a really brilliant, amazing number. Putting the pressure on selling. What happens if you put it in Croke Park and you sell 60,000 tickets? It's incredible they sold 60,000 tickets, but it's actually a disappointment. The atmosphere isn't what it would be. You've still given 20,000 more people the chance to see Katie than, than would have been in the Aviva. Yeah, when the atmosphere is just yeah. coming out the sides, do you know? Maybe, but. As opposed to an absolutely jam packed, heaving Aviva. I think this rush to big venues is like, oh, it's like, but the atmosphere. So the atmosphere and the point, if Amanda Serrano wins in the point, yeah. when there's 7,000 Katie Taylor fans, it'll be one of the great all-time achievements <laughs> in world sport in history. Yeah. It would have been like Andy Lee beating uh, Chavez Jr. in Mexico, where, you know, the, the die was stacked in advance. But when you go into the lines down and you win... Wayne McCullough won in Japan against a Japanese boxer to win a world title fight. That's a, like we underrate the value of that because it happened in the middle of the night and it wasn't watched on, on terrestrial TV. But like, mm. you can't do it, do you know? Whereas if if she goes in and beats her in front of forty thousand in Croker, where the atmosphere will be a little bit flat no matter what, unless you have the full eighty thousand. Yeah, but I think first of all you will have the full eighty thousand. The atmosphere in Croke Park will be brilliant. Will be class. If it's eighty thousand, yeah, I agree. Even if it's sixty thousand in Croke Park, is that not better than than forty thousand in the Aviva? No. Maybe not. Full house, like, full house, hundred percent. Ah, Jesus, the full history though. Ger- walking the hallways. Remember of- Ireland Luxembourg when there were six thousand people at it, and there were six thousand mad Luxembourgers like Ireland were under the cosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was only six thousand. I know, but like, like one of the best national stadiums in the world because it's full. Does the history not matter here? Michael Collins throwing the ball in. The history in Croke Park, Jer. And, and this is not GA exceptionalism at all. Sixteenth man on the pitch at the end of the All Ireland exactly. final. Shane, another historical, uh, another historical know, moment. Uh, we're not forgetting that one too quick. One of the great moments. Four minutes past eight this morning. Here's what's coming up between now and ten o'clock. Alison Miller is standing by. We're going to talk rugby. Uh, the Ireland team has not been officially named, but the papers have the same team, so we suspect that they know what they're talking about. Uh, around the world with Shane Hannon at twenty-five past eight, back in its rifle slot, getting the love that it deserves. Virtual insanity with John Duggan at eight forty this morning. Daniel Harris going to talk to us about the resurgence at Manchester United at 8.55 you had to be there is boxing boxing themed with Eric Donovan this morning and we play out some Gavin Cooney goodness from the uh, football show last night uh, we are going to take a quick break OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today as I said rugby with Alison Miller next OTBAM the Six Nations is upon us this weekend Warren Gatland of all people uh, is standing between Ireland and glory that's not true Johnny Sexton says we're not playing Warren Gatland <laughs> Um, but we are uh, certainly at a, some kind of emotional visceral level we are playing Warren Gatland's Wales Alison Miller is with us to help preview the game Alison good morning to you how are you how's things um, excited about this like uh, whatever about the World Cup which we know is looming large on the horizon 
this is an opportunity for us to um, just see how well we're playing. And that's the main thing, right? Just keep playing well, folks, because uh, traditionally, you know, on a World Cup year, this would be around where the time where the, the train goes off to the tracks and the wheels come off. We're like, oh, geez, it's going to happen again. So how are you feeling? Yeah, it seems like it was only Christmas and then January's a blur and the Six Nations is upon us. I think that happens every year. It's happened, it just comes on us so quick. So, yeah, I think the thing about the Six Nations is it starts early and then you're into it. And I think momentum and getting a good start is really important. And this game to Wales, it's going to be a tough game because in the Millennium Stadium, going to Wales is a tough place. But I think it's an opportunity for us to play more rugby and gain more confidence and try and keep that form up that we've showed one of the things about the form is really interesting is that uh, I think um, uh, Keen Tracy made this point on the, or maybe it was Mick making the, the point that in November there wasn't a, it was Keen, there wasn't a massive sign of progress from the summer. It was kind of maintaining, and that's a good thing because there's still room for growth. Like we, we didn't blow Australia out of the water at all. Um, we didn't blow South Africa out of the water. Nor, nor would you expect us to. But um, we're kind of at a level, and it'd be great for us to, to show progress. Uh, where are the rooms where are the parts of our game that there is room for us to show progress Ah, good question Um, I suppose we remain consistent and I think if we can just up our performance in what areas uh, good question really have to sit down and watch it but I think um, you know like with the back tree there that's particularly dangerous Um, they're starting to gel really well together You've got Hansen, uh, Ewell Keenan and James Lowe. Uh, particularly, you know, they're they're very difficult threats. And I think if we can get the balls through more, and we've, we've obviously seen the ball, uh, you know, we've been becoming more, more expansive. So I think there's opportunities for that. I think our set piece. Um, I just think in general around the game, I think if we just, we don't like, it's not looking for massive uh, changes in any particular area, but if we can prove every area at the game I think those small little one percenters in a game at rugby at that level I think it'll make a huge difference so it's not necessarily um, any one thing I think it's just trying to improve every small thing that we do on the pitch in all those areas you know be that our backline attack be that our forward play line outs from set piece um, you know transition from um, defence to attack all those areas I think just one percenters especially the consistencies that we consistency that we've showed, and that if we build on that, I think it will make a massive difference. There's motivation too, Alison. Like you, you mentioned, Hugo Keenan there, and I was interested to listen to him during the week, and he was talking about the fact that you know he hasn't won a Six Nations. You know, you think about the World Cup and elements of shadow boxing or whatever for for later in the year, but a lot of these players want to win a Six Nations Grand Slam. Yeah, and I think if you could do that in the Six Nations, it would build huge confidence. Obviously, those players have that motivation if they want to win it. They've never never won it. Some players obviously have, and I think for those players, if they could do that, like regardless of the World Cup, that's obviously the important thing this year to win a Grand Slam or Six Nations would be a huge achievement. So, yeah, that's something that they'll be looking at. And I think it's the talk whether we experiment or try and win the Six Nations, but I think you could probably do both if we were being smart about it. Um, Like if we look at someone like, you know, the 12 position at the weekend is probably going to be the one that's the most, um, that we, when we see in team selection, who they're gone for, they've gone for McCluskey, um, Aki or Osborne. And whoever they go with, but potentially if you were to, you know, 
take a risk on someone, not a risk, but like give someone that's uncapped a game like Osborne, like you're putting him in there essentially with a lot of experience. Um, you know, he's outside uh, Sexton and Ring Rose, who are highly experienced, and he also plays with them at Leinster. So, like, that's a hugely experienced team, but you're also experimenting. But at the same time, with that level of experience, I would still expect the team to win and perform really well, even though one player is uncapped. That would be my thinking on it. I know people think differently, but I think we're a good enough team that we could do that. If you're to believe some of the... Uh, the reports in the papers today it would suggest that ahead of the, the team being named today Stuart McCluskey is going to win that race to be played at outside Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what the talk is at the moment and look it would be good to see him getting that opportunity because he obviously played very well in 30 minutes in the first um, Autumn International got the arm injury and then kind of um, did push on but obviously we saw um, what a good player he is he's obviously so physical we say that his ability to offload but also his distribution skills probably doesn't get enough credit for that. So it would be nice to see him starting in again, getting another opportunity. Like if he's playing well and he's performing, which he obviously is in training, it would be good to see that rewarded. And like, it's good to see, we talked about form being rewarded. If that's the case, like you want to see that. So yeah, that's all the talk on, I suppose, around the town at the moment. It does, and, and, and sorry, in the papers today, um, both the, the Times and the Independent have their probable teams, and McCluskey's in both of them, so it'd be a big surprise if he, if he doesn't yeah. end up getting selected. The one thing you'd say, though, is that yeah. it's if you play okay and you do your job, it's, it's sometimes harder to get out of the team than it is to get into the team. You really need to be injured to get out of it. So um, that would put the pecking order and the depth chart very firmly. Number one is McCluskey for that position until Henshaw comes back. But um, it's him, and then he's ahead of both Aki and Osborne. And uh, while one of them might get an, an opportunity off the bench, or one of them might not get an opportunity now until the Italy game, it's like it's going to be a, a long L Six Nations for you, kicking your heels, third slash fourth on that depth chart. Yeah, like it's interesting. Like you know, if you like like that, if you don't start, and, and like you know, nowadays obviously the bench and depends what way you split. But like it's hard to get on that bench, and if you don't get an opportunity, then. Yeah, it is a long Six Nations and I, I suppose it's whatever way Farrell decides to uh, go with the Six Nations. Is he going to really keep a settled team, which, you know, a settled team, get a good start, gain momentum, they're playing well, build confidence, build form, going into a World Cup. It depends, but also is he going to maybe try guys that are performing? I think he is a guy, Andy Farrell, that if he thinks that someone's ready and they're being playing well, I think he will. he will play them. Um, to what extent like I think someone like Hugo Keenan is obviously nailed on but I would like to see Jimmy O'Brien start at least one game in the Six Nations to just to look forward to that World Cup and you know that every player can't play every game if we want to be contenders so um, yeah it's an interesting point and I think obviously the 23 jersey this weekend will be an interesting one to me to see who gets that spot you've obviously got like Larimer and Stockdale in the wings you've got you know Aki and you've got um, who else am I missing you've, you know like it's just um, it's an interesting one to see like who gets that position because Aki Osborne or Brian Larimer and Stockdale like so um, what kind of risks is he willing to take Andy Farrell because sometimes you got to take risks to get a high reward so um, but he, he'll know he'll know the, like how things are going and training and what he needs for his team and how to build consistency, you know, which creates confidence, which creates form, which ultimately leads to the World Cup then. The talk, certainly in the Irish Independent, is that he's uh, leaning towards Ross Byrne 
uh, to cover the out half position. Like, if you're Andy Farrell, Alison, are you are you starting Johnny Sexton in all five of these games, or do you want to see the likes of Ross Byrne play one or two of the games? <laughs> the good old chat of this <laughs> that goes around. This has around. been going on for months, but now now we're and only a couple of days away. I talked the other day, and and they're kind of um, they. Oh, I'm in a room with sensor lights, guys. This happened together last time. I have to do a quick run. And <laughs> um, Bit of exercise in the morning, sure doesn't hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe we should be doing that as well. <laughs> That'll make anyone in a workplace get moving. Um, so, yeah, like I was listening to someone yesterday and they were saying like, oh, I think Johnny needs to keep playing because he needs to keep his form up. And oh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with playing him in every single game like he he's so experienced he builds a team around him um but like it's interesting whatever way you approach it like like obviously start this weekend play this, like probably like I think he should probably play the majority of the games but managing them that the other guys are getting time and certainly getting their start against Italy because you're kind of, I suppose, if you're going down that approach, you're, you're crossing your fingers and your toes and you're just hoping that he gets to the World Cup and, and nothing happens. So that's kind of, you know, you're you're taking a gamble. But then um, if the other guys don't get any time and something potentially happened, then you're leaving yourself kind of in a vulnerable position. But that's the kind of conundrum we are in because it's got to this stage and there's no one as good as him, which is credit to Johnny. Like, that's... A great thing to see. I think it's his 14 Six Nation uh, campaign, and he's 37 or 38, whatever he is. But um, does he need to play all five games? Does he? I don't think so. I think we need. They probably needs to blend it in that he gets enough game time to to develop whatever his form and that. But at the same time, uh, manage him because he's older and also. Uh, you know, think of the greater good of the team and getting those, is it Ross Byrne or Crowley, some game time because essentially you don't know how capable someone is till they put them in with, like, the guys are going to be playing around them and how they perform in pressurised situations, environments and no better place in the Six Nations, you know, playing those top quality teams, especially in the Six Nations when you've got, like, France who are playing really well and we don't know what, uh, Bortles England are going to be like at all they're an unknown entity like at this stage you probably don't have a style of play or um, you know we don't know what structure they're going to take or anything because it's it's so unknown after Eddie Jones Do you reckon as uh, someone who, who's been around Irish squads and, and, and provincial squads as well over the years Alison at Bundy Aki yeah, there was in, internal disciplinary issues before Christmas he's been linked to a move to Munster as well so there have been off pitch distractions for Bundy Aki do you think the likes of that are, are Maybe playing into the fact that McCluskey gets the opportunity this weekend, that you know Andy Farrell sees some players as. I guess there's a lack of game time there as well, and and that's a yeah, reward like for McCluskey. Yeah, like I don't know what the issues obviously were in Connacht, and he obviously wasn't selected, but definitely, like I think the more straightforward someone's life is, and the easier it is, the player is going to perform better. And I think, like I think, if a player is then it's performing well and playing, you want to pick them. But I think if there's issues. And they're not playing and discipline issues. Obviously, it's going to, you know, coach managers are kind of human and they're going to, I suppose, not, not even wonder about that, but that player is not putting themselves in the best scenario to play. And you don't kind of, I suppose, you don't want that player to be carrying around baggage. And like, I suppose it's only human nature, but it probably doesn't help on the Aki's case if, if that's been, you know, what, what's the reason. And obviously, 
the main thing is he hasn't played and you need to be playing at this level week in, week out to yeah to build momentum. So that's the first thing. But obviously the second thing is like a player like that, well, why isn't he playing for Connacht? Like, and it might show maybe no fault of his own. I have no idea what's going on. But um, yeah, like the less, the more simple your life is as a player, you know, and anyone would say that if you're going through maybe a harder time in your life for whatever reason, playing is a little bit harder because you've got more distractions and all that. So distractions don't help uh, elite level sport in any sense and any any sports person will tell you that so there's obviously some distraction there for whatever reason and there's issues so um, yeah that could be potentially a reason you know Two quick things on that they, they put him straight in the team against Australia after his eight game ban uh, ran out and he, he rewarded them with an early try and they also picked Jack Crowley in that game against Australia which maybe we've kind of forgotten a bit because uh, Ross Byrne comes off the bench and kicks the winner I definitely would love to see an experimentation over the course of this and it's clearly not going to happen because the team looks like Sexton's going to be uh, starting but I'd love to see Sexton on the bench for a, a big game not the Italy game you know like yeah I would like I would too and there's so many people that would disagree with us but I think we're at the stage obviously Johnny is so far ahead of the other 10s but at the same time we have such a good team and so many leaders around the field that you're, like I think we're in a good position as an Irish team to be good enough to be able to do that. I, I, that's what I think, and I think that should be your mentality. Like I think that should be your mentality as a team, and I, I presume that it would be the mentality of the guys that 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 we are good enough that um, you know and put these positions, put these guys in the positions that they will be able to perform. And often you'll often maybe doubt a player. You might think, oh, they might not have it. And you, they, you put them into pressurized positions and they absolutely thrive on it and they get you know a full 80 in the tribe so I would I, I would agree with you I'd like to see that loads of other people would have such a different opinion on it but that would be my opinion I don't think looking you're looking forward to a World Cup yeah I don't think you're actually risking defeat by picking Jack Crowley or by picking Ross Byrne to start the game and having Sexton there for the last half an hour or 25 minutes and it's not a reflection on Sexton's form or a suggestion that you're, no. you're not our number one guy you're still our we, we know that but like forward planning and just how easy it is for teams to target the 10 like yeah off the off every scrum the the blindside flanker his job is to crush the out half as soon as he gets the ball off off every rook crush the out half like we know Sexton's going to get absolutely targeted because we they they keep telling us France have been targeting him in yeah. every six nations they've got him late every single every single one he gets tackled late and sometimes he survives it and sometimes he doesn't but like you know, maybe maybe we could like have him come off the bench. And I think we and... have a luxury that we have like a like a world class, stellar class player like Johnny. Like he's so so good, and like that is amazing. But also in reality, he's at an age now where you don't, your body doesn't recover as quick. It's attritional game. It's highly attritional. I know they obviously play two games, get a break, play a game, get a, another break, and then the last two. But at the same time. I suppose any SNC will tell you you're looking after those those older guys a little bit more smart and so it's about being smart that we're um, you know we're looking after them we're getting them in the best possible shape to World Cup while still playing him and being realistic. Obviously, the other guys are not quite there yet, but at the same time, yeah, I'd like to see them play and give them an opportunity and give them enough time that when they get to a World Cup. Uh, we're not in the same position we were in 2019. Yeah. Um, you know, coming in cold, essentially, like. Yeah. And 
uh, I mean, you know, we should learn the lessons from history. I just, <laughs> I'm just trying to put my hand up and say if history matters. It's mm, important sometimes. It so we should, yeah, yeah. It's probably some things we could maybe do differently this time. Yeah. The, are you surprised, Alison, at the the Welsh selection in any way? I was kind of looking at it, going, "Is this is this the twenty twelve Six Nations or is this the twenty twenty three?" Like, Apart from the kid they picked in the centre, and they're like, yeah. if, that was, "If that was Ireland, that guy's never getting to play." That's true. Yeah, Gat- Gatland, I suppose, has gone for players that have uh, you know, uh, what's the word, <laughs> delivered for him before, and that he knows what they can do. So it's interesting to see, like, depends on how those Welsh players, those players, you know the older guys and the more experienced guys we could call them for Wales, how they deliver and how they play for Gatland and how the younger players, they all merge together and what they can do. And, um, you know, he does get results from his players, but it's the merging of that experience that he's picked and those younger guys, can they can they come together and um, get a performance? Um, you know, he's an interesting character, Gatland, I think, you know, he's obviously gone out there saying, um, like, we're taking a free shot. But um, I was actually interested in reading what Johnny said, and he made a good point. If they were taking a free shot, he probably would have gone for more so younger players. So I'd say he's gone out there to, to, to get the win. But I still think the quality that we have, um, I think, regardless of the selection and the older heads that he's picked, I think we're good enough to, to perform and win. Even though it's going to be a tough game away um, I still think we're good enough to do it. But yeah, it's interesting um, to see his selections and um, to see what he's done. And, you know, he's dropped some people and left some people out and stuff like that. So yeah, it's interesting to see will those players play, you know, get up for Gatlin because they obviously probably have huge respect for him and they're used to working with him. They know what he's about. They, he knows what they're about. And there's a lot of loyalty and trust there. Alison, good stuff. Enjoy the game. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, guys. So uh, Alison Miller giving us her thoughts on the game. Um, I'm scarred, obviously, by what happened to the San Francisco 49ers at the weekend, where uh, six plays into the game, their third choice out half slash, you know, mm. uh, like the most important. The, they always compared Sexton to Tom Brady, or they were like inspiring him by talk of how well Tom Brady was doing. And then Tom, Tom couldn't have just waited until next season to retire. He had to do it before the World Cup. I mean, mm. come on, Tom. Yeah, you're Irish. You can you can take one for the team. <laughs> At least pretend you're going until after the World Cup. Yeah. So um, Brock Purdy is the Ross Byrne here. Is this? So uh, you're worried about the well, the ranks getting well. And after that, they get to Josh Johnson, who who is with all due Crowley. respect is like you know has was picked off the practice squad. So. Yeah. So Harry Byrne is going to be our at half in well, the World yeah. Cup quarterfinal <laughs> at this stage. You know. Uh, but you have to be ready for that. That like injuries are part of the game. You do, and so they they never practice with the backup QB in. They, or they get very very minimal uh, reps in practice, um, because they you, you know the, the gap between the first and second is always supposed to be so massive. And yeah. then it turns out the Forty ers managed to somehow flukily look into somebody who was really good as their third choice this year. And uh, but once you go past that, the depth chart gets so thin that the game is up it's over there's nothing you can do yeah so Purdy was it Purdy that was Mr. Irrelevant yeah so then even so the guys below him are <laughs> well there, there was nobody below him they had to they yeah. had to go and get somebody from another practice squad uh, at that stage so you just think that like injuries are going to happen but you need to get game time meaningful game time now maybe they think that one game that Crowley had against Australia 
and Ross Byrne coming off the bench that day was enough. Yeah. It feels like you probably need four or five games. But I feel like in rugby, as opposed to American football, they are training in training with those other. They are. Halves. They are, and they're, they're they are. They definitely are. And there's days of the week, I'm sure, which are rest days for yeah. um, for Sexton. That and they actually get to play as well. Ross Byrne and the likes at provincial level in different games. Ross Byrne gets to play, yeah. And Crowley is getting to play in the centre because Joey Carberry's playing ahead of him. <laughs> but for Ireland, yeah, against England or against France, like I would definitely. I would definitely pick not my strongest team for this France game but have all the lads on the bench and go this could well be our starting team against France in a big game in the World Cup like it's 50-50 if we'll be playing France yeah so right don't, so don't play your best team have them on the bench like have them have them ready to come on in the second half and if we need to make a Mount of Furious comeback we Mount of Furious comeback and we see how we go but give Crowley or Ross Byrne and a few others the opportunity to see how they match up what it's like for the anthems, what it's like for that roar of the crowds. Mm. Obviously, it's not quite the same because it's a home game. I don't think any of that matters to professional sports sports people. Like Matty Williams was talking crowd. about the Millennium last night and how, now, things weren't going very well for Scotland at the time, but he had five debutants playing in the Millennium and the roar of the crowd and he looked around and he's like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> we're in trouble here. I'm paraphrasing, Matty, so don't... Um, yeah. But I, like... But they're used to playing in front of crowds. A slightly louder crowd is not going to be... I think... It's not the crowd. But the crowd is amped up because the game and the occasion matter more. So the occasion matters more. This is like... This is a, a tournament. This isn't... This isn't even a Champions Cup match that's a bit of a dead rubber because you know you're already qualified. But if Ross Byrne could kick a, a winning kick at the last minute to win a November International against one of the big teams in the Southern Hemisphere, then he can kick a winning kick in a, in a World Cup semi-final. There's, I, I, like I think they're not the same. No, they're not the same. But I think if you can do one, you can do the other. It's a good sign. Yeah, it's definitely indicative. It'd be great to give him the opportunity in a big Six Nations game. Now, there's a good chance he's coming off the bench if he's if he's on the bench. There's a good chance he's coming off the bench at some point. Yeah, against Wales. Although Saxon does play a lot of minutes <laughs> um, for a 37 year old. Yeah, I was I was about to slag Alan, Alan Wynne Jones for being 37 and still still going. Fair uh, play to him. But, but I mean, Saxon's the same. So and Lee Halfpenny 34 on the like. As a as a fullback, I mean, I don't know how these lads do it. Whatever they go off the drink for January, Shane. Well, obviously, that's we've established did. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a life changing moment. It's in the valleys. It's just in the blood in Wales, isn't it? Uh, and Ireland, it turns out. Must but be. it is a dad's army Welsh selection. We should kill them. Like, come on, come on. <laughs> uh, it does feel like a, a throwback with Warren G and all these lads. The Somebody old- was in our um, YouTube comments uh, pointing out Owen Sheehan's uh, Twitter and. Instagram activity overnight. Oh, was, yes. uh, he was tagged by somebody uh, asking for the most annoying. Uh, you, you talk about yourself. He, re- he reposted. He reposted the video with the kids. Was it in Wales when Owen went over and was chatting to, to some Welsh kids in advance for Six Nations game? Was it last year, or the year before? And the kids didn't take. I find that very offensive. I think one of the kids. One of the kids said he wasn't happy whatsoever. Um, Owen is, was taking the task what is the most infuriating and unlistenable Irish rugby podcast where you're guaranteed to get total goons talking undiluted flat out shit non-stop please tag in any good ones I need something to sharpen my hashtag Ireland Week focus away from the WRU Omni shambles glad we could be of service Edward Jenkins on Twitter Jenkins I wonder where he's from and uh, mm. uh, somebody somebody said uh, the little ginger virgin from off the ball although he may have moved on <laughs> that sounded very uh, that was Mike sinister. Le- at Mike Liam Smith. Yeah. Hello, Mike Liam. He might have moved on. 
He's still alive, Owen, anyway. Uh, and he follows Owen. He follows Owen, yeah. See, they, they, they hate following. They hate following. They want, to, they want to see what he's at just to keep in touch with him, do you know? Poor Owen. I'd say he puts up with a lot from, from the Welsh. The little ginger lad. It's harsh. It's uh, 8.30 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. 0879 Particularly hello to our uh, Welsh fans. Hate watching us this morning. Thanks for those clicks. The valleys are shite. We love them. Uh, it is time for something entirely different. We have Around the World with Shane Anna. Welcome. Welcome to Around the World. The segment that for the last two weeks has been on a Friday with an um, unnamed ginger host who, um, with all due respect, didn't give the respect that Around the World deserves. He dissed it. He acted disinterested. He laid back. He yawned. He gave out about my selections. He said they were crap. All in all, he just took the luster and the, 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 the lure away from my segment, which I put a lot of work into every week, has to be said. At least 10 minutes of preparation goes into this slot. Um, and, and I had a story, a very interesting story last week about, you know, Cameroon fielding uh, overage players and bone density scans. And as soon as I mentioned bone density scans, Adrian fell asleep. Uh, he started slagging it. And then I got a load of comments from people, at least one comment on the YouTube saying, Shane, love this segment. It's fantastic. Keep it going. And a few tweets from people who are clearly scientists who are very interested in the bone density scans. So if you do enjoy this segment, leave a comment. Tell us you enjoy it. And if you hated it, just don't comment. Leave me alone. But around the world this week, Jer, we're going to start. Uh, I find a lot of these stories tend to be from the United States of America, maybe because so much batshit crazy stuff happens in the US of A. But we're going to Virginia, first of all, in the, the United States on the eastern seaboard. Virginia's basketball coach, a basketball coach in Virginia, has been fired from personating a 13-year-old. So this is kind of the opposite of the Cameroon story from last week. So a 22-year-old Virginia basketball coach fired uh, after being accused of attempting to pass herself off as one of her 13-year-old players during a game. So this was a, a station in Norfolk. One of the members of the Churchland Junior Varsity Girls Basketball Team in Portsmouth, not that Portsmouth, was out of turn earlier this month. Arlisha Boykins stepped in and impersonated the absent player in a game against Nansamon River. Um, so one of the parents came in. Um, Boykins was an assistant coach on the team, no longer an employee of Portsmouth Public Schools. They were first tipped off about this story by one of the players' parents. So this is... Uh, Fantastic. Now, footage from the game. We've got a video. Now, this is, uh, remember, 13-year-old girls playing a basketball game, and there's a 22-year-old. Spot the 22-year-old. This is a, a clip from Wavy from TV. That game. Churchland is in the black uniforms. Number one right there that just came up with the black block shot. We're told that is Arlisha Boykins. They were taken on Nansman River. Uh, this video has been edited to show you some of the highlights. Uh, Arlisha is apparently a 22-year-old young woman going up against 14- and 15-year-old girls now, we have confirmed that Boykins is no longer an employee of Portsmouth Public Schools. And since this game, the student athletes on the team and parents decided to just end the season. They will not be playing any more games this year. Portsmouth Public Schools did launch an investigation into this matter. The details have not been revealed by officials quite yet. I feel like she's not even trying to hide it. She's just clearly the best player on that pitch. Maybe she can pass as a 14, 15-year-old. Just don't do it. If you're 22, I mean, have some moral compass. Uh, but uh, the, the father of the 13-year-old, who had been impersonated, commented. He said, coaches always preach to the kids about integrity and those types of things, so I was just shocked. I just need an apology because I haven't yet received one from the overseer of the programme. Sort it out. 
And the programme's dead. Programme's dead. They've all decided to stop. So that was the first story from Virginia, United States of America. The next story, I don't even know how to pronounce this place. Thank you for the music as well. Uh, go to Reims in France. R-E-I-M-S. Is that how you pronounce it? Medellin. <laughs> Medellin. It could be rice. It could be Reese. Right, Reims, I think. Is what <sighs> I, yeah, I think exactly. Gotta, yeah. Yeah, hock up a spit there just to, to pronounce this one. Uh, the League One outfit, Reims. We're going to. Where's Cameron when you need him? Like, I know. Yeah, he's got he's got one talent in life. Maybe he can pop in before the end of this this piece and let us know how to pronounce it. Uh, but they're in Liga, and they've been fined a whopping twenty two thousand pounds sterling every single game at the moment. That's because of their manager. He's an English Belgian called Will Still. Still has British parents. Was born in Belgium. He's overseen a remarkable run with uh, the French club since being appointed as their head coach in October. He's only thirty. He's the youngest manager in European top-flight football, uh, appointed until the end of the season. He was the assistant manager before then. There he is. But this is the story. Again, maybe a bit of an Owen Sheehan lookalike, this guy. He uh, got into football management by playing video games. Football manager. Now, if, you're, if, you're man- if your parents ever tell you... Uh, what video- football game did he play, Shane? <laughs> Stop playing video So there's a quote from him on, on screen. I'd never considered that football manager... Had had an influence on my real life career, but thinking about it now, it definitely did. I got fixated on it as a kid, and playing the game probably ignited the fire in me that I have now as a coach on the touchline. They've lost just once in their last 17 games. Uh, so apparently, because they're doing so well, they're happy to keep paying the £22,000 fine per game. Why are they fined every game, you might ask? He doesn't have a UEFA Pro licence. He's not allowed to be the coach. Um, but it he leads them into. like a lot of money. It does like, seem like a lot of money. For, you know. The French league for them to be able to because it's like extra twenty grand a week per know. game. Yeah, um, it, he so you just do the license and maybe get the money himself. I know you'd imagine. So he he was uh, he was saying um, that you reflect on it and think, why the hell am I doing this? How am I in the position to be coaching against these guys? Because last week they got a last minute equaliser against Paris Saint Germain. He's coaching against Messi and Mbappe, and his background is in football manager. Um, so it's quite an interesting story like I'd love to get him on the show Will still at some point uh, moved from Belgium to Preston age 17 to focus on, on his career path uh, Falar and Balagoon as well who Arsenal fans will be familiar with uh, is, is the guy banging in all the goals for this Reims team they've jumped up to 11th in the league on table uh, they've lost just 4 games this season uh, so yeah the other time equaliser against PSG kind of brought it into the the, uh, the story room again from last weekend so uh, kids if you're told not to play video games don't listen to your parents do what you want because you never know why, where it might end up. I think that's the moral of this story. We'll head next in our stories on around the world to the Netherlands to Feyenoord and the greatest example of shithousery I have ever seen. The Feyenoord goalkeeper Justin Bijlau left FC Twente fuming after some quick thinking avoided the potential goal threat. So this uh, this game, Feyenoord, at the moment this, the moment this happened, we're leading 1-0. The game ended 1-1, but this moment was in the first half. Uh, have a look at what, what the goalkeeper does to waste a little bit of time. I think we've a, we've a clip of it as well here. What's happening? So essentially, the keepers come out and headed the bar, tackled the ball out of play. Clearly, then the FC Twente player is going to take a quick throw in. They're probably going to score a goal, but he spots another ball uh, on the sideline, throws it onto the pitch because he knows they can't play with two balls on the pitch. Delays the game, gets a yellow card for his troubles, but I mean, stops a, pro- a probable slash potential goal from happening. FC Twente do equalise in the second half, but. Uh, the, he had a ball thrown at him for his his um, his trouble. I do like if he could have just got hit by the ball, your man would have got yeah. sent off. <laughs> it would have been prevent a goal, get them sent down, to t- and you've done like that would have been amazing. Yeah, hundred percent, a grand slam. 
But it, it, like, it's just one of those moments. It's quick thinking. So goalkeepers, um, you know, they're standing in the goal for the entire game. Maybe they're not they're, they're not giving the credit they deserve, but that's one of the greatest examples of shit house I've ever seen. Maybe we'll see Gavin Bazunu do this once Matt Doherty comes like back. It's like having a 16th man on the field. It, it is. It's kind of like chemical croaks. But um, I feel like with Matt Doherty going to Atletico Madrid now and Diego Simeone, maybe he can have a whisper in the ear of Gavin Bazunu and Cuevin Callagher and... Irish goalkeepers can, can adopt some of this shithousery into their uh, into their World Cup qualifiers. Who knows? The final place we're headed, lads, on uh, around the world this morning is New York City, USA, and a controversial story from downtown Manhattan: the Empire State Building lighting up in the colours of the Philadelphia Eagles. Fly Eagles, fly! We're going green and white in honour of the Eagles' NFC Championship victory. This hasn't gone down well, lads. This hasn't gone down well. Sunday night, the skyscraper attracting the ire of a sizable proportion of New Yorkers, lighting up in the colours of the Philadelphia Eagles, who would reach the Super Bowl uh, by beating your own beloved 49ers, of course, during the NFC Championship game. Eagles, of course, being the massive rivals of the New York Giants. Now, uh, look at this for a reaction. How lame. How lame is the Empire State Building? Lighting up a New York building in the colours of an NFC East rival. What an absolute piece of shit building. I'd be embarrassed to have it in my city. They should knock it down. We've got some more reaction here. Another photograph coming up. Uh, I don't even have a mouth, was uh, the Empire State Building's response to Snickers, saying the Empire State must have been hungry Sunday night. Have a Snickers. A lot of companies, of course, jumping on board hey. and uh, having their, their little moments. Hashtag corporate bands. Exactly. Who there doesn't a, love that, eh? There was a video reaction as well from the Empire State Building who, uh, who pushed this video up to, to react to all the comments. <laughs> I mean, the Empire, so <laughs> the Empire State is, is very, very uh, harsh on social media. They, don't, they really don't care. It, it, it has happened before. 2018, when the Empire uh, State Building lit up in green and white after the Eagles won the Super Bowl, uh, New York politicians have come out saying, as the representative for the Empire State Building and a diehard Giants fan, let me be on the record saying this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so there's there are a number of reasons why this has, has caused uh, controversy. The Giants' Twitter account also acknowledging it. I'm just here for the comments. But an inanimate object, Jer, causing so much consternation. Well, the obvious answer is don't be crap at football, New York Giants, and uh, don't get your ass handed to you on a regular basis. Now, in fairness, they've made significant improvements, so we'll see what they're like next year. Exactly. Is that it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's our stories this week. All right. That is this week's episode of Around the World with Shane Hannon. Let, let the people decide. <laughs> let, let the people decide. What, what do you think, folks? Uh, get in our comments. Get on our Twitter, at AM and tell us. Be honest. Where else are you going to hear this stuff? It's true, yeah. You might have missed these stories during the weekend. Pearls before swine, I say. Yeah. It's uh, 8.41. It's actually now time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! All right, JD. We are in the neon of cabaret themes and weird music uh, this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Neon's it. underrated. I love neon. I'd love to see a bit of Japan, Blade Runner. Um, you, you were talking about the eagles there and the flying and stuff. I just got a thought of Al Pacino in the bath and Scarface. And he goes, uh, Manny, look at the pelican fly. Come on, pelican. <laughs> That's my left field observation this morning. <laughs> so, I don't know if you remember it. Really good, good, good moment. Oh, you've brought me back. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Brian De Palma. 
So, Virtual Insanity, you're right. We, remember, we've got a podcast now uh, this year, and uh, we haven't drawn any money yet, so we're obviously hoping that'll change, but it's a long-term game. I don't have any fears that we'll, uh, we'll get some winners. Uh, so, the Pebble Beach program starts today at half four in California, used by uh, three courses used, uh, so Spyglass Hill, Monterey, uh, and also Pebble Beach used for two rounds. It's a pro-am, so you've all the celebrities like... Um, your man from Fresh Prince of Bel Air is in there. Um, what's his <laughs> Will name? Smith? No, the guy with the jumper. Yeah, it's, he plays Carlton. Alfonso Ribeiro is the actor's yeah, name. Yeah, Bill Murray. Um, having a moment again, is he? Because he definitely disappeared off the cultural radar for like celebrity, 25 he? years, was he? Yeah, he the, did a few years ago. The English one? The English one, yeah, yeah. Maybe is like there an American one? I don't know. Um, so. Yeah, so Kenny G, the, the guy who plays that on the saxophone, he's like he's multi-billionaire, all these people. Like, so they're all playing for three rounds. You need a lot, bit of patience to be playing with all these lads. And um, it's not really great TV. But uh, by the Sunday, it's a bit better at Pebble Beach. So Seamus Power should have won this last year. Didn't, but he is in the field. Plays with Thomas Dutree later. Um, so we, I picked five golfers. I'm only going to give two of them now. The rest are on the podcast network for bonus content. So they're on the podcast if you want to listen to the whole thing. Uh, but the two I'm going to give, the two main ones, uh, Keith Mitchell is the headline one for 28 to 1 for 450 each way. Uh, he is double the price of Maverick McNeely, who I thought of putting up, but I think Maverick McNeely is too short at 16 to 1. So Keith Mitchell's had his best season on the tour last year. He was tied for 12th in this event last year. Uh, should have been placed, to be honest. I, I think I had him last year. And he comes into this tournament fresh. He played well in his last event in the American Express. Um, he, he's strong off the tee. And I think that's what you need is kind of fiddly tracks around here. They're like tricky tracks. I think he needs to be strong off the tee and accurate. Keith Mitchell is that. If the putts can drop at 28 to 1, I think he's worth 450 each way. And the other one is Grace and Sig for 350 each way at 80 to 1. Another one of those golfers with a brilliant name. Um, so he once again faltered in the final round last year with a 75, but he was definitely a contention to place. Plays well on coastal courses, has already been in the top 15 in Bermuda and in Georgia and Sea Island this year. Grayson Sig, so not under pressure in terms of his tour card and has won a couple of times on the um, the feeder tour. So I think Grayson Sig is a good each way bet at 80 to 1, and Keith Mitchell's the headline tip this week at 28 to 1. But we've got three others, and they're all on the podcast network, Virtual Insanity, which starts at half four today. Uh, Maverick McNeely is short as 16. To one. Yeah, too short for me. What's going on? Somebody's never won. Uh, the, the field isn't that deep, but he's a kind of a sexy pick. Uh, I think it's way too short. You've been a, uh, you've been on the McNeely bandwagon for a long been. time. Yeah, but I'd rather be on at thirty threes or fifties. I think this is a silly price. He played well last week, but not that well. Like there's players I put in the podcast that play better than him last week and are about bigger prices, four or five times a bigger price. I'm seeing Seamus Power at twenty to one as well. That's a very short price for Seamus Power. He's obviously like one of the big beasts this week. He is, yeah, with Matt Fitzpatrick and Victor Hovland, but there's not that many beasts. Um so yeah. This is where we're starting to see the thin fields yeah, because of Liv. Yeah, you would have had players like uh, I don't know who who would have played from Liv in this, but like I think Dustin Johnson won this a couple of times. So that's a good I presume example. Patrick Reed is playing. I presume Mickelson plays this, does he? Mickelson, yeah, has won this before and loves it. Uh, and yeah, he was a, always a big fixture at the 18 people at Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So yeah, you're seeing a little bit of that now seeping into the whole thing. And obviously, you know, we've been, our appetite's been whetted by Reed and McElroy last Monday. So, um, But I do think this does provide opportunities for the unsung heroes, the, the up-and-comers, the, the players that might be a little bit under the radar. So from a, a pointing point of view, I do think it provides value because, you know, Victor Hovland might not be on this week. Matt Fitzpatrick might not be on, especially if they're going and playing Pro-Am for three days. Therefore, you might get value out of this tournament. Pro-Am, uh, the Pro-Am talk got me thinking there, John. Who's the one current golfer and maybe one celebrity you'd most like to do a round of golf with? 
this is the Gareth Bale thing, isn't it? Um, I probably like to. I mean, I don't play golf, you see, so I'm, I'm not, um, maybe it's a bit of a redundant question. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind playing a round with Obama. Oh, like he knows how to play, likes playing golf, whatever. But um, that's I didn't expect that. Yeah, good shot. Yeah, it's 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 hard to. Um, Would you call him Mr. President the whole way around? Um, probably. Mm. Um, him. Get a get a get a lift on the old plane. I'm sure they've got some kind of. I'm sure they still have some kind of. I know it's not Air Force One, but some kind of plane. I'd say when they retire. Yeah, I doubt he's lining up for Ryan. You get on a motorcade anyway. That's one of my dreams in life is to be in one of those motorcades. In the beast. Just on any motorcade, you know the whole kind of thing where you know you got the, the motorcycle escort and you're one of those limos, the blacked out windows, and you're just speeding through and like you know you're just splashing water at everybody. What has happened in your life to get you to that point? Um, obviously, my life's gone very wrong. Uh, oh, it, it's a bad thing. I, I, okay, right. I, I was wondering, like, what good thing has happened to get you there? Motorcades. Uh, Who gets motorcades? Just politicians, or you get? Mo- uh, if you're a media in those things, sometimes you get. I wouldn't paddle because it's my birthday. <laughs> 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 I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. What was it again? The pedalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amsterdam. I wouldn't pedal because it's my birthday. Yet. <laughs> I was thinking. I, I was thinking of a. Yeah. I was going to think of another story. How would you wave? Would you, yeah. Sorry, you had, a, you had a story this week. Go on. Do you, do you ever get comfortable? When, you know when you when you've had maybe two or three drinks and you get comfortable and you don't want to you don't want to move. You ever have that feeling? Oh yeah. Um. So Kerry played Dublin last July in the All Ireland series, and it was beautiful. It was, I remember it was a beautiful Syrian hot day, beautiful sun, it was a fantastic day. Uh, Three thirty throw in was in the Upper Cusick. Got my tickets during the week, whatever, and got to two o'clock, and was just getting comfortable in a Dublin pub around Grafton Street. I was thinking, ah, oh, this is really, really good. But you know, there's a kind of a cut-off window. But if you don't leave by that stage. You're going to be a typical Dublin GA fan arrive late. Yeah, or not even or not. arrive at all. To yeah. be honest, you end up watching on TV in the bar and like pretend you were there. Uh, but I, can't, I couldn't do that to myself and, and the person I was with. Um, so we went, we went up to the rank uh, on, on Steve's Green at two o'clock and we're waiting for half an hour. I said, this is like, this is, um, this is getting like treacherous now. And the idea with the two to three points and you're walking for an hour in that heat to possibly get there at 20 to four is not really, so that wasn't that appetising. What we did was we just hopped on one of those carriages with the pony and uh, we, we, we got a, a lift through the whole of town uh, on the pony and trap and just saying to everybody, we're not getting married, we're not getting married. So you're getting a, a pony and trap. <laughs> Normally it's only kind of done a, a loop around whatever, uh, Grafton Street. So we, we so you ended up in this uh, pony and trap with the with the guy, you know, he's whatever, he's, he's guiding it through O'Connell Street, uh, straight the whole way through and then up to Summer Hill. And then there's quite a big hill up at Summer Hill. And we're starting to feel really guilty about the poor old horse because the horse, the more uh, we were going uphill, the faster the horse was going. So we ended up with just getting off the horse. It cost 80 quid. <laughs> I was going to say, 600 euros later. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, pretty good horseman as well. So to be fair, yeah, it's... it's we got, we it's got in there with about three minutes to spare. But uh, yeah, it's... Um, it's the most Dublin thing I've ever heard. Uh, and also it's just the, the stupidity of having a couple of drinks on you and actually partying with 80 quid because you think it's a bit of crack. Asher, look, a fool and his money, as That's they all easily say. parted. Come here, it's uh, Six Nations Saturday for you. What's coming up on Off the Ball on Saturday? Uh, uh, Gordon Darcy, live from Cardiff with Ashley and O'Reilly. So, uh, and we've got Neil Back as well. Bit of an interview with Neil Back on uh, England, Scotland in the Calcutta Cup. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll be on the air when the, when the game is on. So, look, we'll have regular plays from Gordon Darcy. build up as well at half one. So, this is the big one. Uh, I haven't won there in 10 years. And uh, I feel really excited about it, guys. I'm sure you do as well.
JD, enjoy. Thanks a million. Cheers. That's uh, John Duggan giving his, his virtual insanity this week. And as he said, you can subscribe to the podcast on our podcast network for more of those golf tips. It is 8.50. OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We have um, Daniel Harris in uh, just a moment. We'll get to that. Uh, I play around with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, the, sorry. You, sorry. Sorry. I realise when you ask a question like that, you have four answers for me ready to go. <laughs> I actually was just thinking about it there. Uh, and he's like, all right, all right, all right. Uh, obviously, Dave recently played with Evan Ferguson before he was Evan Ferguson. I played golf with him. Yeah. Ah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Evan did, um, did tell me when I was interviewing him recently that he, he loves a bit of golf. Oh, all professional footballers love a bit he's of golf. He's turning into our Gareth Bale. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. He's going to play for Real Madrid and score the winner in the Champions League final. <laughs> Why can't we dream? Ireland, golf, Brighton. Is that the flag that we should do up for Evan Ferguson? Ireland, golf, Barcelona. Go to Barca. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? He's... You know, they've had good forwards. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I got a text from one of my mates the other day who said, uh, off the ball is going to single-handedly ruin Evan Ferguson's career. And you know what? I, I, I think, from one of your mates? Yeah. I think the, Screw him! The implication was that oh, we're putting too much pressure on him. Evan Ferguson can deal with the pressure. It's not pressure. It's love. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We're expecting, we're expecting so much of him because he's It's so excitement. Brilliant. It's joy. Yeah. Just keep doing what you're doing, Evan. There's no, there's no pressure there. You, you, like, you're good enough, so just keep doing it. You know, he's, he's, he's one of the most exciting prospects to come out of Ireland in in a long time, probably since, what, Robbie Keane? Roy McIlroy. Yeah, sorry, in, in a football sentiment. But yeah, he's, <laughs> you're putting him on a pedestal, Roy McIlroy. Um, why not? Why not? The sky, the, the sky is the limit for him. Uh, David Clifford. David Clifford, yeah, yeah. Similar levels of expectation. There's also, uh, speaking of green uh, things uh, that, that are going to go sky high, have you heard about the Comet tonight? Sorry, uh, this is just a... a uh, public service announcement for people, right? An incredibly rare green comet is going to be visible tonight from Earth for the first time in 50,000 years. Oh, wow. The last time it flew past our planet, Neanderthals were roaming. Uh, distance of about 26.4 million miles, but you'll be able to tell the difference between the comet and the surrounding stars. It'll have a streaking trail of dust behind it. What time? Uh, so any time tonight uh, is, the be- is the closest pass, I think, to Earth. Um, so there are obviously these balls of dust and ice but as they get closer to the sun, they begin to melt. So they have this stream behind them. Um, so that, that, for yourself, is what it'll kind of look like. But it's worth stream behind them. Sorry, I thought um, you were talking about your love life there. Yeah, not quite. But uh, yeah, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, there was mammoths and big ice age animals the last time this, this passed. It's just a, a POA. 50,000 years. We, probably, we, we weren't around the last time this happened, so get out and And we might not up. be the next time either. Exactly. I don't Although, think who knows? AIs, AIs, uh, going to yep. ruin everything or else save us forever. Yeah. Uh, on that note, it's eight fifty-two. <laughs> Space watch. Time to talk about uh, Manchester United. Daniel Harris, good morning to you. Hello. Uh, Shane's a Man United fan. He said buzzing after last night. Uh, is that the general consensus? It's time to think. Uh, Man United are back, baby. Um, I mean, they're not back until they actually do something. I don't suppose. But what I would say now is the thing that is most striking about United now that feels the most different is you go to games, you watch games, knowing that they're going to win. And that's not really been the case at any point since Fergie, where United draw Nottingham Forest in the League Cup final. And you know beforehand, there is not a chance United are going to lose this tie over two legs. It's not possible for Forrest to beat United over two legs. And what we've seen, particularly over the last few weeks, is since the World Cup, 
is that they're not they're starting to win all these games and they're also starting to win them a little bit more comfortably now whereas at the beginning when they were winning they were winning quite a lot of games narrowly now the attacking football and the confidence of the attacking football is semi back and they're starting to knock aside teams who they were struggling to beat before that we were having the philosophical discussion earlier on about uh, all trophies are not the same that um, when you're at the start of a cycle winning a trophy is more important and uh, feels better than when you're at the end of a cycle that's not actually true for fans I think if for an outsider watching a club this trophy for Manchester United will be more important than say anything that they won under Van Hal or Mourinho as an outsider but as a fan all trophies are equal right you get the day out you get to go to the match you get to celebrate in the moment yeah, I think so. And I, I would like, United won, when United won the Europa League under Mourinho, that was a massive trophy because that completed the set. That was every trophy that the club could win had been won. And there are very few clubs that can say that. And if you can't say it, if you couldn't say it then, you can't say it at all because the Cup Winners Cup doesn't exist anymore. So that, that Euro, and it also came the couple of days after the Manchester bombing. So that particular trophy won under, won under uh, Mourinho was, it was an enormous trophy win that one. And then also, it's not just about the club story. It also can be about personal stories as to why particular trophies matter to you. So for me personally, I have a, quite a close relationship with, with the cup that they won under Van Gaal for various reasons and just some various things that were going on in my life at that time that made that a very significant one. So there'll, there'll always be reasons. And also, that FA Cup win, if United don't beat Palace in that cup final, then Alan Pardew doing that dance becomes enshrined in football folklore forevermore. <laughs> so United not beat... Number one, just football folklore didn't need that. So United saved the whole world from that. But also, United saved themselves from the humiliation of being the patsy that was the victim of that. In the same way now, actually... United don't want to go to Wembley and be the Patsies since Newcastle's last trophy since, was it 68, 69? United don't want to be the team that gets beat by Newcastle when Newcastle win that trophy. So there'll always, there'll always be reasons as to why trophies are particularly special, but it would definitely mean something if they were to win this first trophy in whatever it is, six years. Well, we were gifted a Jesse Lingard winner in that FA Cup final in, in what was it, 2017 as well. I mean, one and of those that's moments. the thing, when people were slagging off Lingard, in my mind, there was always... He saved United from losing an FA Cup final to Palace with an unbelievable goal when they were down to 10 men. Mm. And even if he never did another thing in the United shirt, that, for me, is enough. Do you know what, Daniel? Uh, I mentioned it earlier, and uh, look, smiles don't win games, but there are smiles on the Old Trafford uh, faces around the stadium and uh, amongst the players and management as well. Ted Hag all of a sudden is smiling. Martial, who doesn't smile ever, was smiling after his goal. And Jadon Sancho got the... One of the warmest receptions I've seen at Old Trafford for, for some time, certainly through the television, it seemed that way. Anyway, uh, how good is it to see him back? And, and I guess the other part of that question is the number 10 role. Um, how well would, do you think he'll fit in there? I actually said to a friend this week that I thought that Sancho could play that role. That, uh, I would be wondered if we'd use him there because there's quite, because there, the, the wings are taken up. He, he quite likes to play off the left and there's Rashford. Rashford is immovable in that position at the moment and there's Garnacho behind him. And then on the right, there's Anthony who is more of a kind of winger, I think, that Ten Hag wants on that side. And so I wondered if he could play there. And I also sort of wondered if he could replace Ericsson because I was thinking, I guess, about the way that Arsenal play. That the way that they use Martin Odegaard and the way that they use Granit Xhaka, basically players who are constantly making third man runs, running beyond the strikers. And I wondered if Sancho could play as an attacking midfield player rather than as a number 10. But as a number 10, the reason it works is really clear, I think, that 
he lacks the power and pace to go on the outside at the moment anyway i wonder if he could get a bit a bit a bit fitter and he doesn't look as thick in the body as he did previously before he had this break so i think he's i think he's lost a bit of weight which should give him a bit more speed perhaps and he probably needs a little bit more power but he doesn't have the gas that rashford and garnacho do and he's never going to and in in order to beat people on the outside you either need phenomenal gas or you need a lot of power so he's, he doesn't have that. And if a winger doesn't have that, then they're not as good as one who, who can go both ways. And one of the things we've seen in Rashford's development this season is the ability to go on the outside is one of the things that has made him a much better player now. Whereas inside, the space is much more restricted. So it's not so, so creating space is not so much about speed. It's more about feet and intelligence. And Sancho's ability to take the ball under pressure to do magical things with very soft feet and to move away from players in tight spaces. He's, he's amazing at that. And he's also a really good finisher. And so those two things make me think that he could do a pretty good job there because he can also play on the half turn. The problem for him is that that's where Bruno Fernandes plays. But what it gives United is it gives United options whether they want to rest Bruno because I know people were talking about playing uh, Christian Eriksen against Reading and him getting injured. For me, when you overplay players, it's not so much the fact that someone like Andy Carroll might lumber into them and hurt them on purpose. It's more that you want the players to be fresh come the massive games at the end of the season and you want them to be fresh through the season. And the way that you achieve that is by rotation. So United haven't had an alternative to Bruno, really, in the three years that they've had him. If they do have one, then that, number one, means that they've got flexibility for before games, but as Ten Hag said last night, they've got flexibility within games as well. Whether it's a swap, you go there and I'll go here, or whether it's replacements, like last night happened. Sancho came on, Bruno went to the right, made a brilliant goal, and so he he's got he's, he can he can do lots of things, Sancho. And once he starts playing with more confidence, it'll probably be possible for him to play anywhere across the front because it's more about how you feel once you know that the ability is there and the ability is there. Is this? Um... Is this the the one kind of caveat to how well the season has gone so far from Manchester United's perspective is that we're just uncertain about, not just Sancho, but the relative strength and depth across the rest of the, the squad? Or do you feel relatively confident given how well the coaching has worked so far that actually the squad is deep enough to manage the challenge of competing on all the fronts they're competing on at the moment? There, there are a few players in that team that can't really be replaced. And that is the case. If you have brilliant players, sort of a facility of being a brilliant player is that you're missed when you're not there and it doesn't matter who you bring in. So I, th- I would say the player that they are least able to replace is probably Casemiro. And I don't think they would have lost that game to Arsenal if Casemiro had been, had been available for that one. And they don't much want to lose Martinez or Varane either because there's a big step down there. But otherwise, they have quite good replacements in every position. If Shaw doesn't play, they've got Malassia. The right backs are not, neither of them are that good, but there's not that much between them. Bruno obviously is, is the leader of the team. He's the captain of the team. He's the best player in the team, but they do now, they do have other ways of scoring goals besides Bruno, which they didn't really have under Ole. So a- any team will miss good players. If you took Thomas Partey out of Arsenal for a long time, that would be a problem for them. If you took Martin Odegaard out of Arsenal for a long time, that would be a problem for them. And it's not necessarily because the squad strength isn't right. It's just because these players are brilliant players 
and there aren't players who are like them. And if you, it's not possible to have a player as good as them because they'd just be sitting at the side. So, yeah, I, I, I suppose that the, the one caveat would have been up until recently, we would have said Manchester City could largely have any of their best players playing, even you know, even without De Bruyne for a period last season, they were still able to reel off a lot of games. And then he came back into the team, and the team improved. And you say, oh, he's slightly better than what they had as a replacement, but the replacement was excellent. Now with Cancelo gone. And uh, just a few questions there. I'm, I'm not convinced, as convinced, that everybody is in the same form they were in at Manchester City. But I guess, you know, that's the, the level you have to aspire to. And that's, they're the champions for four out of the last five seasons because they have that squad. Um, notwithstanding what you've just said, is there any concern that they don't have a, enough depth just yet in the evolution yeah, to yeah, finish it? Yeah, for sure. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but they don't have, like, even if Casemiro, if Casemiro is not available, they don't have a sensible alternative to him. Obviously, there's not going to be someone as good, but there isn't really anyone else in the squad that can play that position. So there's no depth there. Uh, there's no there's no proper centre-forward, so there's no depth centre-forward either because I guess there are players, Vekos and uh, Martial, who would be good options at centre-forward if you had someone above them, but you don't, so they're lacking a little bit there. But otherwise, the squad's in reasonable shape. The thing about United still at this point is they still need really... You might four players for the first eleven. They probably um, Ten Hag probably wants a new goalkeeper because in the end, De Gea, De Gea he's not good enough with his feet and he doesn't push the, he doesn't push the team up the pitch. So if you remember the Arsenal game, one of the reasons the pressure got so on top at the end there is because United dropped deep, and part of that is on the centre backs whose job it is to keep the line further forward. But that's also partly the goalkeeper who should constantly be pushing them up, except he doesn't run them, doesn't really want to sweep in the space behind them. So he probably wants a goalkeeper. He probably wants a right back. He definitely wants a centre forward. And he also wants a midfield player because in the end, Christian Eriksen's a beautiful footballer with lovely feet, great imagination. But physically, he is not good enough for a team that wants to be ball dominant against another team that has players who are as good because their players will also be able to run harder and faster for longer. So that's four players United really want for the first team. And if you look at the teams United want to compete with, uh, Arteta now is signing players for the squad because he basically has a player that he wants, that he likes in every eleven in every position. He probably is going to upgrade Granit Xhaka next, in the summer or, or, or soon, but he likes all the players that he has and he's happy with them. And so he's now buying for the squad, whereas United still need to buy for the first team. And City, similarly, they basically have a first eleven and lots of options, and that's what United need to compete with. And they don't have that yet. They're still trying to buy first eleven players in the summer. So once they buy the first eleven players, actually, the strength in depth isn't bad. The strength in depth is not ideal now because the first eleven isn't where it needs to be. I think once uh, once a team is winning, uh, Daniel, I guess the trust is there in the manager, and and the trust was there on transfer deadline day when Christian Eriksen uh, his injury is announced that he's out till late April, early May, and then the the quick deal is made for Marcel Sabitzer, and he was in the crowd there last night at Old Trafford watching on. What do you think he brings to the team, and is he a is he a good acquisition, a good replacement for Eriksen? I mean, the ponytail obviously rankles slightly, but yeah, I think <laughs> ponytail aside, relative to relative to what United, the situation that United found themselves in, where they're like, Jesus, we've got, we need to replace a key man immediately because we don't have options to go and get a player of Zabitz's quality just like that. It sounds that feels like more or less the best they could have done because. He's an excellent player, and he doesn't have Ericsson's soft feet or imagination or the ability to see the to see the best pass fastest. I don't think, but he actually 
might make the team better overall in some games because he has the physicality. He doesn't have the assists of Ericsson, but he has the goals. He's faster. He's also extremely versatile. So he can play across, he can play any midfield position. He can play behind the striker. He can play on the, off the wings. And just having those options in, in the squad in a place where you lost an option is should be really useful. I mean, you never know how a transfer is going to go really until you see it. I mean, there are a few, Wayne Rooney, Rio Ferdinand, where you're saying this literally cannot go wrong. So it, it might turn out to be, it might turn out to be rubbish. We don't know how fit he is and how long it will take him to get up to match speed because he hasn't played that many 90 minutes this season. But in terms of the situation they were found, they found themselves in and what they were able to do, that was, that was a pretty good effort. And I think, I mean, I, I think he's a good player. And what I've seen of him, uh, I, he's someone that I think could add to the squad. He's probably not good enough to be a first 11 player for where United want to get to, but I'm sure he's good enough to be a rotation player. I mean, he's a better player than Scott McTominay, so and he's probably a better player than Fred as well. I know you'll, you'll have seen um, Bruno Fernandes' post-match interview, uh, you know, picking up another Man of the Match award. He's making a bit of a habit of that recently as Bruno Fernandes, uh, where, he, where he talking about the, that outside-of-the-boot pass and cross that he tried a couple of times last night. Given Ricardo Quaresma certainly much of the credit, uh, his professor, as he as he put it, um, I love that. I mean, it's brilliant, wasn't it? And, and Bruno is kind of a man. He's taken a lot of flack from United fans and critics, but um, he's coming good. I mean, anyone that was given that guy flack should probably have a very serious think about how they watch a game of football. In that he's not he's not he's not perfect, but he carried the team for three years more or less. And he was one of the last to go when it all really went dreadful under, under, under Rangnick, where he'd been flogged to death for what was two and a half years by then. It played game after game after game after game. I think he'd been, him and Harry Maguire, I think had been the busiest players in world football or something. And it was, people spoke about him like he was an idiot, that he was someone who just tried a Hollywood ball or a Hollywood shot every time. Whereas it was very clear that that was just, his job in the team because the team didn't function that well because they couldn't pass through midfield. So they weren't able to dominate the ball. So when he got the ball, he didn't get the ball that often. So he had to try and force something to happen. And it was obvious, I think, to anyone who is sensible that if you suddenly put him in a better team with a good midfield player next to him, Casemiro and Ericsson, that he was going to get loads more of the ball and that there was no reason to suppose that he lacked the football brain to not try and do something ludicrous every time he got it because he's got speed, he's got tenacity, he was the leader of the team already. Why? I didn't understand why people didn't think he'd be capable of giving a five-yard pass when a five-yard pass was necessary, mm. which is what he's doing now. Why would he not be capable of running up and down and playing sensibly? It was just the way that he was playing was a product of the way that the team that he was in played. It was a team that played in transition, really, that liked to play on the counter. So his role was to try and spring something. Yeah. And now now that's not the case. So, I mean, people that were giving him stick, I, I, I can't understand that just... He was the, he's the best player of the post-Fergie era by miles and miles and miles. His numbers are astonishingly good. And he's a brilliant footballer who is, who, and he's also reliable. Right. We've seen a lot of good footballers in the post-Fergie era who have been Angel Di Maria, Paul Pogba, brilliant players who have been unreliable. But Bruno is, was reliable, still is reliable. And it's no surprise to me that he's, even better playing in a really good team. We've got to leave it there, Daniel. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Have a good day, everyone. Uh, Daniel Harris giving us um, a pie-in to 
Bruno at the end there. Uh, nine minutes past nine this morning here on OTBAM. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, here's what's on OTB Sports Radio today. OTB Gold at one o'clock is Jack McCaffrey. Leaders' questions at three with Stuart Lancaster. Our retro panel is telling it like it is at four. I have no idea who's on that panel. Um, I suspect John Hartson's on it. Nigel Mansell is uh, there from six talking, I think, with Joe. I think that's from uh, lockdown, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, you can follow off the ball across all our social channels and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. After the break, Eric Donovan's You Had to Be There. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Eric Donovan, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. How are you keeping, Jared? Yeah, good. How's the hand? Jane, how, yeah, it's, it's coming on. <laughs> Don't have to punch anymore, so I'm all right. <laughs> no rush with it. Come here, before we get into you, you had to be there. Um, do you think you had to be there in Croke Park, or would you be happy enough to be there in the three arena for Amanda Serrano and uh, the beating she's going to take from Katie Taylor? Ah, uh, yeah, it's a great question, to be honest. I think everybody has this kind of uh, romantic kind of connection to Crow Park and everything that it means and the history of it um, and I do think it would be really special in there. Um, I do hear your point though, what if Crow Park is you know, three quarters full, would it have the same kind of atmosphere? I never thought about it like that. I actually, I only kind of viewed it as being a full house, you know when I have visions of Katie Taylor boxing in Crow Park, I I see a lot of people disappointed Uh you know, for not getting tickets, like, you know, and I've always said that I think Eddie Hearn underestimates the love for Katie Taylor in this country. And, um, you know, so I, I would like to see maybe the bigger stadium, um, and obviously like to see it full as well. It would be, it really would be a disappointment if it wasn't. It'd be a generational moment, wouldn't it? Like Katie Taylor and Croke Park specifically. Yeah, you see, that's what I think that Kitty Taylor has, which is kind of different to other world champion boxers, is that she has a a reach that goes right across to the families of across this country. Just families, you know, parents, kids, you know, where other world champions might just have the boxing fans or the hardcore sports fans. Um, but Katie just uh, she just connects to everybody, and uh, I think it would be one of those. Um, family events a once in a lifetime yeah as you said a generational thing so I, I, I definitely would see her selling out Crow Park and I would be really shocked and surprised if she didn't Okay well in that case then like Eddie Hearn predicted people's response it was like just do it Eddie you know maybe he doesn't have to take his usual cut maybe he can give the money to the fighters <laughs> Yeah you're dealing with one of the <laughs> toughest kind of prof- professional boxing promoters out there I know he's very very good um, but you know uh, he's a businessman at the end of the day and uh, no I was quite quite surprised as well when I heard him speaking about the, the costs involved now I didn't look into it a whole lot much but it was just kind of like oh that was alarm bells for me you know it was like oh god are we ever going is this ever going to happen you know um, because I me personally, I thought Katie Taylor has really reached the pinnacle. She's done everything. She's proved everything. And I, I really don't even see the, the point in a rematch with Serrano. Like, for what? I think she could fill a stadium with 
boxing anybody, you know. Um, well, not saying anybody, but even somebody like respectable, like a mandatory challenger to her belts. Like she beat Serrano convincingly. Um, and she managed to overcome that obstacle. But Serrano is dangerous. She's very dangerous, you know. Uh, and what I mean by that is she's capable. We've seen it in those, I think it was the fourth, fifth and sixth round of that fight. We saw where she really shook Katie Taylor to the core of her, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so, so that shows that she is capable of doing, you know, of causing a knockout, you know, and that would be a, that would be an absolute disaster, you know? And yeah. it's just, I don't, I don't see why the need to go there again. They obviously feel the the money is enough to pay for the the level of risk. Um, there's a lot to play out here, and, and we'll obviously get an opportunity to talk about it again. And if 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 it happens in the three arena, then that will also be an incredible night. I think the three arena has made your list of you had to be there. Let's get into them. Your first one is the preliminaries in the World Junior Championships. It's Amir Khan versus Jordanis Ugas of Cuba. Mm. So this is Amir Khan, basically as a kid, I, I suspect in 2004. Yeah, I was at these World Junior Championships and I was actually Irish Senior Champion at the time. So I won the senior title at 18, uh, but I was still eligible for the World Juniors. And I was really expecting big things of myself because I had won the Four Nations Seniors as well as a 17-year-old. So I was vastly experienced at this age, you know, and I went out there and expecting really great things for myself and obviously it didn't go didn't go to plan at all but I heard a lot of rumour about this kid from 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 England Amir Khan um, but I haven't seen him yet I just heard a lot about him and um, so when we were there we were on beautiful place a volcanic kind of island off the South uh, South Korea it's um, Jeju is the name of it and uh, I remember the opening uh, preliminary rounds we were you know, we'd hang around with the English lads from time to time. You know, we'd be speaking to them and chatting away with them. We'd be fairly close to them and friendly with them. And um, Amir was there. And I thought he was quite cocky and a bit arrogant, you know, because the Jordanis Yugas, the Cuban absolute legend, was in the ring. And he had come into this World Juniors as a world schoolboy champion. And he was probably... No, I don't think many, he, he'd many losses to his name at all. And he was absolutely exceptional. And we were watching him. Amir, Amir was standing with us and Amir knew he was boxing him next. And we were all kind of looking at Amir thinking, what does he think of this guy? Because he was, your mom was exceptional. But Amir turned to all of us and said, I'm going to stop him. <laughs> I'm going to stop him. And I was just like, hear this lad, you know. And um, anyway, the next day they were due to face each other. He didn't stop him. But by God, did he give him some going over. He beat him, I think, 20-21-9 or something like that. And he was on the verge of stopping him. Didn't stop him, but beat him so, so well, convincingly. And then that was the first time I ever seen Amir Khan in the flesh. And I was really, really taken aback. Full. I was just like, I was in awe of him. And then later on, after that, he went, he went on to win the gold. Um and word was that the English team weren't going to pick him for the Olympic qualifiers because he was too young. I think he was only 70. And uh, he threatened to go and represent Pakistan, his ancestral home. And um, then they changed their mind and they, and they picked him. And, well, 
you know what happened next. He went on and he qualified and won uh, uh, the Olympic silver medal at 17 years of age. And I just remember that I'll never forget that first time looking at him in the flesh, seeing him in the ring, just extraordinary. Uh, is that like, so Kevin Caban talks about seeing uh, Robbie Keane in training and he obviously saw Wayne Rooney in training as well. Is it something similar where you're like, ooh, this is genuine world-class talent I'm seeing here? Because you, you must have felt like you were world-class yourself at that stage. I did. I, look, I came up against, I was in the bantamweight division that time myself. I came up against a Cuban that was about six foot something in the bantamweight. It was absolutely incredible. Kind of unlucky with the draw. But yeah, like when when you think about this guy that I'm here, like absolutely schooled, Jordanis Yugas, he's the last man to beat uh, Manny Pacquiao. Pacquiao retired after this fight. He went on to win the World Senior Championships in 2005 in China. He went on to win the Olympic bronze medal in Beijing. And he's a two times a professional world champion now. You know, he had a close fight with Errol Spence recently, but Errol Spence beat him. But like he is, you know, legend of the game, you know, top, top talent, Pan American, Central American, gold medalist, multiple times, World Cup champion. He's beat them all, but Amir just went through him, you know, and I seen Amir then go on to the, because I went to the Olympic qualifiers too. We were in the same qualifying tournaments and I just watched Amir just dazzle his way through it. Like his, his talent was just extraordinary. His speed, his hand speed, his footwork. He was just, you know, I give him my name for this. He was just lightning. (laughs) (laughs) And like you guys, uh, Eric, like his reputation probably preceded him. Is it the case when you're lining up against a Cuban boxer, and you see that Cuban flag beside their name. Is it kind of akin to maybe a sprinter seeing the Jamaican flag beside a competitor? Like, there's something about the Cuban boxers that I'm sure causes a, a fighter to, to pause and think twice. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, when you see the Cubans coming into an arena or anything, everybody stops and looks at them, takes notice, you know. And what you will notice is that they are very, very, very together, very you know, connected and they don't pay much attention to anybody else. And they, it's almost like they know everybody is watching them. Everybody's looking at them. All the heads are turning, but they don't look uh, like they're interested in anybody else, just themselves. And they just carry on, you know, about their business. And, um, you know, you'll hear, you know, people often talk about this before, like, you know, boxing the flag, you know, instead of boxing the, the man, you know, and the Russians and the Cubans and Ukrainians and that would have had really, really, really high, highly um, impressive reputations, you know, and you would have been, if you came up against one of them or got one of them in the draw, you would have been, your 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 first initial thought would have been, ah, Damn, now we've got to try and, you know, try and muster up the the courage and the know-how to try and get through this test, like, you know, but and that's that would be the, the 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 first initial thought as soon as you get drawn against one of them. Ah, you know, and especially if it's your first fight in a in a tournament, you would feel a bit hard done by. Um yeah. Your your next one is Paddy Barnes, and this is a, a gold medal fight. It's in Moscow, funnily enough, you you're talking about that. So um mm. was he up against a uh, Russian? Yeah, so Paddy Barnes is up against Elvin uh, Mamashadze from Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Incredible, absolutely incredible young fighter, um, major medal winner himself. Beat the beat a, beat a very good Russian. Um, 
it's not so much even the opponent, even though the opponent was brilliant. It was more about the display and the, and the gold medal winning performance because I we came onto the Irish high performance team in two thousand and three. Gary Keegan was the kind of one of the brainchilds behind the whole program, and he was the the first director of it. Billy Walsh being the head coach, Zorantia, and we were all just kind of starting out in this. In this new professional kind of um, setting, you know, we were all we were all boxers, but we were never we never classed ourselves as professional athletes. And remember Gary Keegan saying that to us that you are now professional athletes, you know, and we were trying to achieve something, you know, something really special. And they believed that, you know, world class, what did world class look like? They often spoke about that, you know, well, world class looked like medals, you know. Um, major medals world European and Olympic and in 2002 the year before the high performance team was established an Irish team went to the European Championships in I think it was Perm in Russia and I think nine boxers went out and nine boxers were eliminated in their first fight you know and uh, it was it was more about at, at those times it was go out and enjoy yourselves lads you know and have have to have the crack and enjoy it, you know. But the high performance was a whole new kind of um, new approach where we wanted to achieve, we wanted to get involved in the big fights and the big events. But I remember watching, uh, like I was at the European Championships in 2004 where we won nothing. Oh, sorry, Andy Lee got a bronze medal and he qualified for Athens, but he was the only one to, to get something and, and to qualify. Then 2006, the European Championships, we got a, we scraped another bronze. Kennedy got that. 2008, don't think there was anything. Then 2010. And during these European Championships, I'm watching the Ukrainians, the Russians and the Azerbaijanis and the Turks. I'm watching all these guys dominate and I never, it never, like, I never truly believe at that moment that, you know what, we're actually going to be a powerhouse or we're actually going to be on the top. Like, I just never thought that that would be somewhere we'd get to, you know. And then in 2010, we win five medals, finish second to Russia in the European Championships. That's just an incredible, you know, rise. But it was Paddy Barnes' fight where I watched him winning that gold medal and I was just in the crowd and I was just thinking, wow, how only in a short, well, seven years from the establishment of the high-performance team, here we have, you know, an Irish boxer finishing top on gold, the Ron Avine playing. And I was just like, wow, you know, it really made me believe that with hard work, like with hard work, belief, a supportive um, professional system in place, and everybody, you know, in a kind of a coherent, cohesion kind of togetherness, you can achieve big things. And that opened the door to John Genevan, Michael Conlon, Jason Quigley, all within the, the subsequent years winning European gold medals. It's really incredible when you think about, uh, when you lay it out as starkly as that, to go from nothing to all those gold medals it's not an accident and Gary Keegan who now obviously is on the sideline for the Irish rugby team this weekend his influence in Irish sports when that comes to be considered because he's actually brushed off against loads of other people along the way I know loads of people kind of go to him and have gone over the years how how did you how did you do that what, what was it that transformed this mess into this machine as it was and yeah, um, yeah so 
Next one on our list is Katie Taylor. Now, you've gone for an exhibition fight, but this is kind of a seminal moment in the history of the sport as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a seismic real moment. It really is. Um, because of when you put the context, you know, in, when you talk about the context around it, Katie Taylor was invited to box on the finals the final days of the world's men's boxing championships in 2007 in Chicago. I'll always remember Chicago for two things. I, I, I was, I boxed to qualify for the Beijing Olympics and I lost, you know, it was devastating. And it's always kind of a sour taste in my mouth because I genuinely believed I was going to do it. And I, I got beat by somebody I'd beat before. And anyway, that's the sour part. But <laughs> the other part was, I just felt there was a crowning moment for women's boxing. And that's when Katie Taylor got in to fight on the finals night at a kind of a, an, an interval moment. There was kind of a, a bit of an interval break at the halfway point. If, if my mind serves me uh, right, if my memory serves me right. And she got in to box um, a Canadian fighter. Um, Katie Dunn. Katie Dunn, yes, uh, who is a Pan American gold medalist, Central American gold medalist, who's very vastly experienced as well, Jar. And when Katie Taylor got in, the whole place was just in, in awe, you know, and she won. She stopped her opponent and she got a standing ovation in this arena. We were sitting beside the English team as well. And bear in mind that this English team was full of uh, a lot of superstars as well. James DeGaulle, world champion, Tony Jeffries, Olympic medalist, Billy Joe Saunders, world champion, Frankie Gavin, England's only ever world amateur champion. And they were all just turning to us. Wow, are you serious? Do you box her? Do you spar her? They couldn't believe it. They really couldn't believe it. And if that was um, an opportunity to demonstrate that women belonged in the Olympic Games then Katie Taylor just knocked it out of the park. And I'll never, ever forget that performance. It's almost surprising that that was 2007 and there's Olympic Committee chiefs at the fight and they decide not to have women's boxing in Beijing. Now, they mm. finally they finally caught themselves on and, and uh, you know bring it in as a sport in, in London 2012. But considering, the, considering how impressive Katie was on that night, it, it seems surprising to me that women's boxing wasn't in the Olympics four years previous. Yeah. Yeah, probably I would agree with that. But I, I think... At the same time, even though Katie was exceptional there and she she really did um, plant a seed in all of those officials and delegates and, you know, to, to really seriously consider having women's boxing in the game. But don't forget it, you know, there was a, there was a few special women around at the time, but in terms of strength and depth, mm. they probably didn't have it. At, you know, across all the weights. Um, and that's why they introduced the, um, only three weights into the London Olympic Games, uh, at the first attempt. And then I think it's moved to five and now they're nearly on an equal level with the men's. But, um, yeah, um, it was still, still a, a, a massive challenge, a massive task. I, I believe that when she was in the dressing room as well, before she went out, that, you know, she was told that go and perform that the Olympic officials are watching, you know, and this is, you know, can you imagine the pressure of that? I was going to say, it's like, yeah. whatever you do, don't screw up. It's like, oh, oh. Like, don't be nervous. What? Oh, now yeah. I am. 
Yeah. yeah, and you're already fighting on the world men's final, you know, where you kind of feel like, you know, men have dominated the sport of boxing for years, you know, and here you are boxing in front of your your peers, like, you know, who you would have been, you know, who you would have been looking up to, like, for a long time, you know, and you're getting into display or showcase your skills on this um on the stage, like it was a very daunting stage, I would, uh, I thought, and uh, but she, uh, as I said, she just smashed it. Well, back full circle a little bit. Our next one is Bernard Dunn versus Ricardo Cordoba. It's the Point Theatre as it was then in two thousand and nine. It's the day that uh, Ireland win the Grand Slam. Liverpool, yeah. Liverpool beat Man United, or certainly Man United get beaten because Bernard Dunn famously says, "Oh, what a day! Won the Grand Slam, Manx get beat, and now we're world champion." Uh, this is an incredible fight. The atmosphere is ridiculous. Yeah, ah, it's just unbelievable. It's um, it's there's no honestly. Um, I know it's, I know it's a lot of boxing, but there's no greater um atmosphere. I just find than than a world title fight that has all of the the drama, the knockdowns, the the storyline, the, the the narrative. It just keeps changing, and then everybody, the energy is just through the roof. And I think. I think they showed the the rugby on the big screen as well earlier in the day. I, I'm, t- I'm I'm not sure if my memory serves me correct there, but I definitely think there was some connection. We knew about the rugby anyway as well, or the rugby was sure the rugby was earlier that day, yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, so there was just a, just everybody was buzzing, you know. And then if you think of the story of Bernard Dunn getting knocked out by Kiko Martinez, um, I wasn't at that event, but um. Uh, my some of my family members were, and I remember one of them saying when they were leaving, <clears throat> there was a guy coming up out of the bathroom, and a few of his mates, you know, he says to his mates, "Where is going?" <laughs> they said, "We're going. It's over." You know, so, um, and he was after missing it. So, like, just <laughs> that kind of, you know, to be absolutely just like European champion, then it just not, you know, taken away from you in the most dramatic fashion, like you know, being knocked out, like. Really bad knockout too, like, um, and then to turn it all around, keep chasing his, his dream and his goal, and then to finally get there, uh, and what a classic it was against Cordoba, um, just just incredible, and it was my first ever world title fight to be at, you know, and uh, I haven't been at too many big sporting events or major sporting events, well, boxing mainly, but that was my first real big one, and uh, I'll never forget it. It was a hair standing on the back and neck moment yeah it was a Brian Peter special yeah. he obviously is, it was Bernard's manager he's, he's Katie Taylor's manager at the moment and I remember I think it was that fight um, they got somebody else to come in and pretend they were Bernard and the, the spotlight picked him out and the crowd goes mad and then Bernard comes out from to the Irish over from the other side of the state and Cordova's mm-hmm. like why is this why am I in the ring for so long <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I, I mean Cordova was uh, absolutely incredible in that fight as well and Bernard had to climb off after canvas yeah he was you know he was just so he was some warrior like you know those times there where you know Bernard Dunn had to really find something inside him like you know he had to dig deep down to the depths of his soul because there was times there where he 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 with he like he would took like onslaughts from Cordoba there was times where there was 10, 12 unanswered punches 15 unanswered punches saved by the bell at one stage mm. it could have been stopped Bernard could have been stopped the referee was the referee was that close to just really jumping in but the bell went you know that kind of stuff and uh, you need um, 
you need things to kind of you need the rub of the green you need things to go in your favor and then it, i just feel it was it was his time it was his time and uh it was just amazing to be there to witness it yeah probably the, the greatest fight on irish soil there's ever been i think it goes 11 rounds but as you say like cordoba's dropped in the, in the third and then dunn dropped twice in the fifth so you think it's all over but then ends up going six more rounds which is which is incredible your last yeah six yeah six knockdowns four for Dunn and two for Cordova in the fight like <laughs> just had everything had everything yeah chaos uh, mm. brilliant chaos your last picks um, Eric you've, we've paired a couple in uh, together here Ryan Burnett and Carl Frampton two of your former sparring partners uh, Irish teammates as well winning their respective world titles against Lee Haskins and Kiko Martinez yeah yeah just look I, again just because of the personal link with both of them, I didn't want to split them. I've been very, very close to both of them uh, throughout my career and sparred with them as well. But just two fascinating stories. Um, I remember Carl Frampton, you know, coming up loads of potential, but never really kind of ha- never got there. You know, he was not ma- mainly most of the time he was number two to David Oliver Joyce, you know, um, <clears throat> and um, then things just changed for him. <clears throat> two thousand. I think it was 2009, yeah. Things just changed for him, you know. He beat Davy Oliver and he went on. And, um, or sorry, 2007. He, uh, what's it, 2007? He won the, yeah, he won the European Union silver medal in Earl, uh, in Dublin. They were held there. He had a cracking fight with the French guy in the final. The French guy was, um, his surname is called Jakiev. He's a, he's an Algerian Frenchman, and he won Olympic silver in Beijing. And Frampton had an absolute humdinger fight with him, and uh, it was Frampton's kind of coming of age fight. He did he didn't win it, um, but uh, Barry McGuigan was there, and Barry McGuigan saw, you know, that saw star quality, star potential, whatever, and then later on. It was no surprise to realise that Frampton and and um, McGuigan's, you know, signed up a professional uh, <clears throat> deal together. And uh, Ryan Burnett then as well failed a brain scan. He like he was just an incredible athlete, uh, an incredible amateur boxer, Olympic junior champion, and uh, or youth Olympic champion. I think it was. I think he won a world junior medal as well, and world junior silver medal. And then he was turning professional. And he always had his, he always had his mind, heart set on going professional, but he failed a brain test, uh, brain scan. And then he thought like, Oh God, the whole thing is, you know, it's not going to happen. And, uh, then he went through a really tough time as well. Um, I think starting out, you know, in terms of like, if his story is brilliant. Um, if you ever get talking to him, you know, that he was living out of a car with his dad in England, driving around to the gyms showering in different gyms, training in them, sparring different people, basically homeless, living out of a car. And then eventually he got his break, got his, signed up with Matchroom and Eddie Hearn. And um, he went on to, to to reach his destiny. Obviously, the brain scan got a second opinion and uh, got passed. And then he went on and uh, won his world title against Lee Haskins in the SSC Arena. Frampton won his world title against Martinez in front of 16,000 in the Titanic quarters. And I was in the crowd for both of them and it was just nice to be there because there were two former sparring partners and they went on their journey and they reached the pinnacle and just an incredible backstory as well Eric this has been a brilliant episode of You Had to Be There thanks so much for sharing those memories with us pleasure take care